0: It is inevitable that we face problems, but no particular problem is inevitable. We survive and thrive by solving each problem as it comes up. And since the human ability to transform nature is limited only by the laws of physics, none of the endless stream of problems will ever constitute an impassable barrier. Net. Super excited to do this episode of Made You Think. Very excited to do this episode. This one happened kind of on a whim. Yeah, I'd never even heard of this book. I've heard of this author. Yeah. But I'd never heard of this book until you texted me and said, well, how about doing this next week? This one came from a listener. Uh, well, actually, so I take it back. I, I think it's a listener. You know, I should have looked up who it was before. <laughs> let, me, let me look it up right now. All right. This came from Christopher Bellow. Or possibly Beo or Besho. I'm not sure if it's a Latin American last name or an English last name. But Christopher suggested this book two weeks ago, actually. Right around the time you recommended it. You texted me and said we should do this one. Because he sent it to me in response to my Monday newsletter. I'm not sure if he listens to the podcast or if he just follows the reading, the medley. But... Yeah, he sent it to me and I looked it up. I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. Send it to you. And then, hey, here we are. Yep. It was pretty aggressive reading this book in one week. (laughs) Yeah, but it wasn't as... uh, So I I lumped this in the GEB category, Go to for those who haven't listened to that episode. And I guess we should say the book that we're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) So we're talking about The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. Yeah. So... But yeah, I put it in the the Go to category. What? It is David Deutsch, right? Yeah, I always it, mix up him and Daniel. Dennett. Same. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm glad I'm not alone on that. Okay, Daniel Dennett is, is uh, Darwin uh, dangerous idea. idea and David Deutsch is Beginning of Infinity. Yep, at least. At least he didn't use an all D name <laughs> again. That's exactly what I was just going to yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you can keep them separate. Is that Daniel Dennett is the one who decided to use... Who loves alliteration. <laughs> uh, but this is sort of in the same boat as those two books where it's sort of playful... Yeah. But it talks, it's sort of a a playful meandering kind of book that talks about everything, basically. Yeah. From evolution, physics, philosophy, political philosophy, psychology, money, memetics, memetics, uh, epistemology. Pretty much everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really cool. And ties it all to this one central idea, which. It was very cool. And it honestly changed how I think about some things. Yeah. There's a rebuttal to some of the books that we have read because he mentioned a lot of them. Yeah. Which will be fun. He calls out some of the other authors that we've covered on the podcast so far. He doesn't call out a, well, he calls out a lot of the ideas I would say behind Taleb as well. Yeah. Uh, Which was pretty interesting. Like Lindy especially. Right. Right. Which is one thing that we've held almost sacred on this podcast. And it's kind of fun sometimes attacking your sacred beliefs because you don't want to become a, a, a flood geologist. Exactly. Right. So it's, at first I was like a little offended when he started questioning the stuff. Then I kept reading it. I'm like, okay, this makes sense. Oh, there is something there. Damn it. I'm a flood geologist. <laughs> doesn't mean Lindy is like wrong or not a useful concept. It just means yeah. there are, uh, you just got to use your brain. Meaningful criticisms of it. Yeah. And I think he does a good job of that. It's probably the most counter to other books book that we've read that we find compelling. Yeah. Because the jungle was very counter to like Alice Shrugged, but didn't find it very compelling. Right. right. Didn't sway me. Yeah. It didn't really sway me in any way. This one's very compelling while being, while challenging some of the ideas that we've talked about before. So if you enjoy Nasim Taleb or the go to book or episode or Darwin's Dangerous Idea, or any of those, I think you'll you'll get a lot out of this, as we certainly did. And it's very cool that he um, he's very clearly a scientist. Like, he thinks about things like a scientist. Yeah. But then just arrives at some different ideas than uh, <laughs> Pepper is not amused. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he arrives at some very different conclusions anyway than, like, Daniel Dennett did in, in Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean there's just there's a lot of cool stuff in here. There's also a lot of like speculative stuff, like the multiverse things which we'll get into and yeah. honestly some of it probably went over my head, but we will attempt to talk about it and and see what we can uh what we can uncover. There there is some pretty deep in the weeds sciencey stuff in here. Yep. Uh which is fairly mind-bending and I don't think he does a great job of helping you conceptually grasp it maybe you have to read it a few times it's also not an easy concept to grasp no not at all our minds are just not it's just like not how we how we think it's not the environment that we uh live in right it's one you know suited our our minds are not used to trying to grasp like multiverse quantum entanglement type concepts i found that like quantum stuff especially is uh not intuitive at all. Yeah. That and relativity. Yeah. Like relativity is just super hard to wrap your head around, I think, on a conceptual level. Yeah. And even the concept of infinity. Yeah. Well, he's got that whole hotel thing in yep. there for helping you understand the idea of infinity. Which was which was helpful. Which was helpful. But it's still, I mean, it's really weird to think about. Well, we obviously didn't grow up uh not grow up. Like humanity did not come up in a infinite environment. So our brains are just like. That's just not (laughs) intuitive to us whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. It's It's not something that we normally have to grapple with. So getting used to it's hard. If you think about it too, like kids even start thinking about that fairly early where if you, you know, especially as a kid learns to like count and count really high. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you asked this question when you were a kid, like what's the highest number? Yeah, yeah. I remember like asking that question and then like the answer was like not satisfactory at all. Like somebody was like, there is no highest number. And I'm like, how is that possible? (laughs) And then I was like, wait, but Oh yeah, then you can just keep counting. You can always just add one. Yeah, then yeah. I'm like, but wait. It, like, it just blows your mind. Even as a kid, you like understand there's something weird about that idea of there is no highest number. Because I remember my dad explained it to me by saying like, like, what if you take that highest number? I was like, what, is it a thousand? He's, like, he's like, what if you add one to that, right? And then I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just like, okay, you can keep doing that. Right. But your brain just can't really compute infinity. Yeah. It likes the real world, yeah. Discrete, you know, limits. The rock ends here. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not good with there are this many buffalo, or yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> imagining that you could count buffalo all day and not be any closer to counting the last buffalo, it's right. like a weird thing to think about. Yeah, so it's it's just not what our what our brains are built to do. But that said, he sort of bases the premise of this book on. The idea that if it's not prohibited by the laws of physics, it's possible. Yeah, which is a huge theme of the book. Right. I argue that's like the central theme of the book. That's, where, that's what sort of ties everything together. Well, in the intro, you know, he says that what he's arguing in the book is that all progress, both theoretical and practical, has resulted from a single human activity, the quest for what I call good explanations. And then he expands on that in, I think, three Yes. In chapter three, because or where he says that every putative physical transformation uh, to be performed in a given time with given resources or under any other conditions is either impossible because it's forbidden by the laws of nature or achievable given the right knowledge. Mm. So if something is not impossible by the laws of nature, then we can figure out how to do it given enough knowledge, time and resources. Right. Right. Which is a cool way to think about the problems of the world. Well, and and I like how he expanded that to pretty much everything, like even like disease, right? And he he did it with a historical context by sort of showing how uh, I think he used like cholera as a, as an example of people dying of like diarrhea and dehydration. Oh, yeah, yeah. When they basically were like right next to a fire and they could have boiled their water and prevented right getting the disease in the first place, but it was a problem of knowledge. It was a problem that they didn't know. That there's a link between these two things. And so he uses that to really demonstrate that like a lot of the problems today that we have are not impossible to solve, that is it's just a gap in our knowledge. Yeah. And that it is possible to solve them. Like he he really calls out death. He spent a lot of time on that. You know, I would say a lot of the things we've talked about in on this podcast, like Seneca and Taleb and different things, they all and even denial of death, right? They all are predicated on this idea that we are all going to die. Right. And and he calls out that like. Most likely, yes, but that's not a guarantee. It's not a, like, this is a default state. This is what the state is today, but it doesn't mean that death is not possible to solve. Yeah. At least in his opinion. Right. It's just another problem. It's just another problem, right? And, and, and you know, to be clear, he's not saying, like, you know, there's one blanket solution to death, like, you know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there's yeah. all these discrete problems that are out there to be solved. You know, mean you think about accidents or cancer disease or... yeah. Yeah, they're all just problems that are waiting for the right knowledge to solve them. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool way of thinking, actually. I would, I would argue very optimistic way of thinking as well. Yeah, very optimistic. It reminds me a lot of Matt Ridley's book, The Rational Optimist. I haven't read it. Yeah, it, it's not very good. I wouldn't recommend okay. reading it. But it takes it takes a similar philosophy, just much less well explained, I think, where he basically says that, well, we've you know figured out solutions to most problems in the past, so there's no reason to think that we won't. Figure out problems to solutions in the future. Yeah, right. And Deutsch does a similar thing later on in the book, but I think his explanation for why we will be able to do that makes makes sense. Right? Like Matt Ridley's argument is basically like, well, it happened in the past, so it'll happen in the future too. I think Deutsch does a better job. He actually it. calls that out, where he says yeah. there's like almost no way of using the past as the indicator right for the future. But then this is sort of like a different. This isn't using the past to predict the future. This is like basically saying like every problem, as long as it's not uh, unsolvable according to the laws of physics. Like if you need to get some more faster than the speed of light, that is probably impossible no matter how much knowledge we gain in his opinion. Yeah. But if it's not prohibited by the laws of physics, it's possible. It's just a matter of figuring out how. And and wealth was the other thing he called out. Wealth? Like as a society or as a... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a species. Sufficient resources and all that. Right. Like even if you had given cavemen like the knowledge of how to build a plane there's no way they could have built a plane there's like yeah. weren't the resources to go and even to like all think about all the mechanical um i guess the machinery or the energy that's required to even just get those metals out of the ground shape them in a certain shape right it's like it's not just a matter of knowing how to do it you need to have the wealth to be able to do all of those things yeah exactly so he said it's like a factor of both that's knowledge and wealth right right because i guess even if somebody like an alien told us today like here's how you go mine asteroids for blah, blah, blah. Right. Like we might not be able to actually do it today. Yeah. One thing he calls out in the intro that I thought was very interesting and a cool way to start the book off is basically his refutation of empiricism. Mm, Yeah. Because I feel like we believe that uh, we gain knowledge kind of by experiencing things and then learning from them. And he makes this good distinction that Uh, Experience is indeed essential to science, but its role is different from that supposed by empiricism. It is not the source from which theories are derived. Its main use is to choose between theories that have already been guessed. Yeah, which I would actually say is a great distinction that he brought up. It's like you really can't learn from experience unless you already have some guess about what should happen. Which I think is like tied to the willingness to be wrong and also just like for lack of a better word, of bullshitting, Yeah. right? Because like if you, I'm sure, I I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but I've come up with a ton of horrible startup ideas in the past and then you try them, right? And that's where the empiricism part is important or the experiential part is important. But if you don't come up with the horrible idea in the first place or the idea in the first place, there's no nothing to test. Right. Right, just by, you're not testing anything but if you're just living, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one thing he's calling out is that you need to have, the conjecture before you can use empiricism as a as a tool right it's kind of like you need a hypothesis right yeah you need something that you can actually test which means you have to be willing to sort of conjecture something right like take a bit of a risk yeah right and, and as he points out too it requires creativity right it's an act of being creative and trying to figure out what the truth might be kind of before the experience right i think there's an idea getting more popular now in kind of Silicon Valley and tech companies that, oh, we should just collect all this data and then see what results kind of pop out of it. Mm. And I feel like Deutsch would say- Neural nets or something or- No, no, just like big data analysis, Mm. right? And I think Deutsch would maybe say that, well, that's pointless because you're trying to learn from experience without a certain hypothesis, right? right? You should have a idea of what- There's no aim. Yeah, yeah, there's no aim. You should know what you're looking for. And what hypothesis you're trying to answer before you kind of collect or look at the data, right? Because if you just look at it looking for something, you will find something. Which companies do. Yeah. Companies do. They're like, uh, there's those hilarious graphs that are like... The link between Nicolas Cage movies and. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, have yeah. You see those? What are yeah. the it? Nicolas Cage movies and like gun deaths or something? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, if you just look at a massive data set, you will naturally find correlations. Yeah. Yeah. You need to know what you're testing for. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, and so uh, I, one thing I wish he went into more detail on, and I mean, it was already such a deep book. Maybe there's just no room to philosophize about that in here, but I wish he went into more of like where the conjectures come from. Like he mentioned mm. creativity. But in some ways, your experiences influence your subconscious, which influences what you come up with in terms of your ideas. Right. And then it's like some kind of strange loop, right? Because It's a very self-reinforcing cycle. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's a very interesting thing. I, it, he would have probably, if even if he tried getting into that, it would have been some kind of strange loop. Yeah, it would have been. It would have gotten stuck in pretty. Yeah, I think he would have gotten stuck pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like, it, I, I mean, I definitely agree that Like experience and and empiricism is useful, but it's not useful in isolation. Right. Well, and what he points out later on, too, then, is that you need this idea of fallibilism to kind of complement it. And so what he says is that uh, fallibilists expect even their best and most fundamental explanations to contain misconceptions in addition to truth. And so they are predisposed to try to change them for the better and this is kind of like a life philosophy that I think he's saying you should have, is that anything you think is true, you should assume part of it is wrong. Right. right. And always look for ways to improve your understanding or your explanation of whatever it is that you're thinking about. I've never heard this expressed as fallibilism. Yeah. Right? But I love the idea. Like some people always, I always do this uh, at our company, right? Like I always say to anyone inside or outside that like, you know, we have, we figured out something mm-hmm. that works, but like, we're probably only not even halfway to being a hundred percent right on, on the concept in terms of how it's presented, the delivery, what we're offering, like all the different pieces. Yeah. Obviously we're not perfect because if we were perfect, we'd be a lot bigger than we are right now. <laughs> right. So the, um, But people always find that weird because I'll say that and they'll be like, wait, but things look like they're going so well. And I'm like, they are going well, but like, obviously it's not perfect. Like, It's clearly not perfect. Well, I think we have a bias where we think that if we're perfect, what else do we have to do? You know, (laughs) like, why am I working on it? It's kind of like, I think people think that something is either working or not. Right. Like it's a binary. Yeah. Like very binary. Uh, I see. Yeah. Whereas something could be working and be imperfect. Yeah. Right. And so just because it's working doesn't mean it can't be improved upon. Well, and the cool thing is like the world is always changing too. So even if it's perfect for a moment, yeah, it's like the next moment, it's no longer perfect. It's going to have to adapt to a new reality at some point. By the time you realize it's perfect, it's no longer perfect. There's going to be some like natural entropic force yep. that leads to its degradation, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, you have to react to. Exactly. So like, I mean, that's just obviously a very business focused concept, but I think like in this same way, this probably applies to like politics and just your own life. Any you know, your own life. As soon as you start thinking it's perfect, it's probably not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, one other thing that I wanted to mention on that is I love the dialogues that he had, like the Socrates. Yeah. How he introduces the dialogues in the book. That was fun. And Hermes. And There's definitely a little bit of go to Lecher, Bach influence in here, I think. He mentioned go to Lecher, Bach, I think. Or he mentioned Hofstadter. Yeah. He mentions Hofstadter. Yeah. And he mentions G.E.B. as well um DB and I'm a strange loop I think right the other book that came later but yeah so he, he introduces kind of like fabulism as a central idea along with testing your like using your creativity come up with explanations that you then test through experience and that's how he leads into the book and kind of rounds out the first chapter saying that basically every problem is just a signal that our knowledge must be flawed or inaccurate. Right. Right. And our kind of goal as humans is to come up with better explanations to solve problems, but that will inevitably create uh, new problems. And that's kind of what, what he's getting at with that is that that is this beginning of infinity, right? The beginning of each infinity is a new problem and each problem leads to infinitely many more solutions and their resulting problems that come with them. And we're sort of stuck in this continual loop of, Solve problem, discover new one, solve problem, discover new one. and That's really just all human advancement is. Right. Yeah. Human advancement and potentially what he calls like, um, what does he call it? Like any being or not a being. What does he call like uh, constructors? I think, right? Like when he was referring to it doesn't have to just be humans. It could be any kind of extraterrestrial life as well. Well, I think he eventually goes on to say that like that's what a person is. Right. And it doesn't have to be a human. It doesn't have to be a human. Person is a, I think it's a constructor, right? Yeah. Like person, constructor. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So something he gets into uh, two chapters later in the spark that I thought was pretty interesting is this idea of uh, the principle of mediocrity. Yep. And the anti-anthropocentrism. Which has kind of been going on since, I think he says the Enlightenment. Yeah. Right. But that there, you know, historically, there was always this idea that humans were important for understanding the world. And as we learn more, you know, kind of the obvious realization is that no, humans really aren't important in a cosmic sense. Yeah. Dennett definitely talked about that a lot. Yeah. Dennett talks about it a lot. Right. Really, the only way to understand physics or science or kind of anything is to stop thinking that humans matter. (laughs) <laughs> or that like the universe revolves around humans yeah or that we're, we're significant in any cosmic way because i mean i think uh geocentrism is probably the best example of this right thinking that the earth is the center of right the solar system right it's like well no because the earth doesn't actually matter in the cosmic scale it's just another planet it's understandable why someone would have started with that yeah right it's like it makes sense from a psychological standpoint But yeah, once you're out of that mentality, then it's a lot easier to see the world for what it is. Right. And uh, kind of what he's saying is that we end up being able to apply this to most areas of science and thought, I think. Uh, The the example I like that he gives is how the Earth is actually not that habitable. Right. Right? I love that, actually. I love that he explained that, right? Because it's like kind of gets you away from the uh, what is it like Garden of Eden? type concept yeah or even like the rare earth concept right yeah well the rare earth concept is slightly different i would say at least the book rare earth is much more about the formation of the earth okay and the like where it sits in the solar system being like a bunch of series of accidents it's less about like rare earth as in like the conditions on earth are super rare it's just more of like the fact that this planet ended up being the planet is a whole bunch of weird things like how the moon played a role in that and mars plays a role in that yeah like with the jupiter um, with the uh asteroid belt and then G- the fact that jupiter is so big being actually super helpful for earth why is that helpful? because it has a ton of gravitational pull oh so it can deflect asteroids and stuff yeah anything coming in from outside the solar system it's nice. like besides the sun it's like the first thing that something could latch on to <laughs> got it yeah it's just like all these cool things anyway that would be a cool book to look at at some point but yeah so this gets get outside the the idea that like there was at one point in time this like beautiful Garden of Eden, where we didn't have to do anything, and the earth just provided. And right, yeah, he brings up a lot of points that like the earth is harsh to humans. Like- yeah, the earth kind of sucks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the thing that makes the earth really uh, habitable is us. Yeah. Right, it's our efforts. Yeah, we're- well, Jordan Peterson brought that up in one of his lectures. I forgot which one. It was like last year, maybe two years. One of the biblical ones. Okay, where he said he said something about how. Uh, there was some group that called humans a cancer to the earth mm. and he was like, yeah, we're pretty harsh on the earth, but the the earth does its best to wipe us off the planet every single day. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's also like, it, here's the thing that I think is ridiculous is that earth doesn't give a fuck, right? Like you can't, you can't actually be bad because that's anthropomorphic, anthropomorphicizing. Yeah, anthropomorphizing, An- anthropomorphic, whatever, People whatever, know what you know say we're we yeah, yeah. Uh, The Earth. Yeah. Like, it's not, it doesn't have emotions. No. And also, there is nothing that is bad for the Earth, right? Like, that's true. The Earth's still going to be there. It's bad for humans. It's bad for humans on Earth. Exactly. Yeah, it's bad for us. Yeah. And it's maybe bad for certain animals. That's true. If if the concentration of CO2 goes up, it might be horrible for humans. It might be great great for for plants. plants. Yeah. Yeah. They'll be loving it, (laughs) right? So that's the thing. It's like, you can't actually do anything bad to the planet but you can definitely do stuff bad to humans on the planet right so that's why i always think it's kind of ridiculous some people are like oh we need to save the planet it's like no bitch you want to save yourself (laughs) right which is fine but just be honest about it quote of the day yeah (laughs) should turn that into like a banner or into a a hat hat. (laughs) listen to the bonus material if you want to know what we're talking about free hat True. If you support us on Patreon, you uh, get a free hat that says "No bitch, you want to save yourself." (laughs) Possible new reward tier. Get there. The twenty five dollar a month tier. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) But one other thing he calls out here in this chapter that I thought was kind of interesting is there is this idea that well, the idea that gets thrown around a lot is that the universe is stranger than we can understand or imagine. And what he kind of says is like, no, that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> Humans can eventually understand and solve pretty much anything with enough time and the right knowledge and all of that. So th- this idea that I think he's quoting Dawkins or no, he's quoting John Haldane, who says that the universe is not only queer than we suppose, but queer than we can suppose. Right. right. And he's saying like, no, that's silly, because obviously with enough time, and energy and resources, we can figure it out. Yeah. Right. Nothing is technically beyond our potential comprehension, which is a cool way to think about our minds yeah. and our understanding. It is, but it's also somewhat anthropo uh, anthropocentric, anthropocentric, maybe. I don't know. I'll make it up words now. I don't know, but why though? Because if, if we're just understanding the universe. It, it just means more of, um, well, I think we talked about this on Sapiens, I want to say. It's just like the fact that our brains didn't start off as blank slates. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm not 100% yet convinced that like, maybe we can. I, I think computers will be better at solving some of that stuff or understanding some mm. of that stuff if a true AI can actually be developed. Yeah. Of course, the true AI would also have its own origination problems of like, it came up through humans. Some biases. Yeah. As opposed to through something else. So yeah, I just like, I'm I'm not yet fully convinced humans are that capable of like, complete hands-off objective analysis Mm. at the scale that he's talking about but it's a very interesting thought experiment he swayed me further in that direction than i've ever been before yeah but yeah i I still do think there are some weird biases that we have and just like we were saying the concept of infinity right is so hard for a human mind to grasp right that like and we're like used to thinking somewhat of these kinds of things but like for People who've never thought about it, right? It's just like really strange concept. And that's just infinity. That's like yeah. something we have, humans have thought about for thousands of years. And, you know, infinity is not that new of a concept. So imagine the strange things that we haven't thought about. Imagine quantum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that, that thought came back as I was reading some of the quantum stuff that I was just like, what the? Fuck? Yes, I have no idea what's going on here. It's very clear that you have thought about this a lot. Yeah, and it's like, can my brain even comprehend what's like? Especially, I mean, this was not unique to this book, but the wave and particle stuff. Yeah, like being both, and that being true, and then being like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's also where I think you run into issues sometimes with quantum, like. So we've talked about the secret before, right? It's like that ridiculous mm. book and movie that's like, oh, you can will the universe to you know benefit you by concentrating seriously on visualization basically or something. Or- well, part of that came from quantum theory. Did it really? Because, yeah, if you give if you sit like a stupid person down and show them quantum theory and they're like, oh, so by observing the particle, I decide like which path it took through the system, right? So Mm. my will and actions affect reality. And it's like, well, no, it's not really how quantum stuff works. But you can see how someone who doesn't get like the full explanation could say, oh, you know, our thoughts change reality. Or all his stuff about the multiple universes and multiple histories. Yeah. Right. That like could lead someone to be like, well, if I just concentrate, right, I'll be living in the history I want. Right, right. I can manifest the reality that I want. Yeah, and it's like like the the theory could be true, but then the human brain just might not be properly equipped to understand all the implications, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. There's just like it's very complicated and I'm not fully convinced that like humans can get past some of like the emotional side of it because that's like the wishing part. That's right. like being like, "Oh, I wish" That this is the history I was living in, right? Or like the the secret, right? This is what I hope to happen. Yeah. But that's very emotional. It's not objective in any way. And that's also misinterpreting the theory, really. The theory is not that you can control that stuff, really. Right. It's just the fact that, you know, it's an, I guess, observing it makes it happen. Like, wait, why why is it that it's a particle when you observe it and then a wave otherwise? I am not qualified to give this explanation. Exactly. Yeah. Can someone please link us to something that when I read the explanations, it makes I understand them and it makes sense to me. But reproducing (laughs) the explanation is very hard. Like the part that I've always had a problem, not a problem with, just I just can't, my brain just can't get around it is like, because I've seen this like YouTube video that was like trying to break it down for like I don't know how a fifth grader would get it, but break it down for like a fifth grader. It's like a cartoony video, yeah. And they showed how the experiment was done with like even just a camera, right? And that counted as an observer, right? It was just so weird. It's like it's the fact that there is an observer is changing it, but then that's but then that's very it's not it's not exactly yeah, it's exactly. not. That's what, <laughs> so that's what I'm saying is like that's the part of my brain, and, and it makes sense when someone explains it to me. Yeah, I'm just not good. Like I don't know it well enough to, or I'm not comfortable enough with the explanation to say it in my own words yeah um, it, it's something it's so bizarre yeah i'm not even gonna try yeah like it, I no, because just- when you just hear it on the surface it, it's a very human-centric argument right of like well there's an observer which is why there's a universe and then you're like wait now we're back at square one of humans being like the center of the universe which is not i think what the theory is saying no. at all no yeah anyway Quantum's weird. Quantum's weird. I don't even know how we're going to do that part of the book later. <laughs> I was going to suggest we just skip the whole multiverse <laughs> chapter. <laughs> so we will only embarrass ourselves yeah. <laughs> by trying to explain it. Um, the, the one thing I will add, though, is that the one part of that theory that does that I do remember that I think helps clarify some of it is that it's not that the observer created that reality. It's that they observed that possibility right and so it's not that because you or because the camera was looking the particle went through that hole It's that it could have been going through any of the holes and you just happened to observe that's the possibility that was observed yeah that's the possibility that was observed yeah right so you didn't actually affect anything you just saw something right and then then that brings back the multiverse thing it's like so now you're part of that history where it went, yeah where it was observed going that way right as opposed to being any of them yeah and so As the photon is fired, it's spreading out sort of in infinite universes and then reconvening at the collection point at the end. Right. Right. Which is sort of what he gets into later in the multiverse chapter. But again... We may just have to suggest <laughs> that people read the book for that chapter because And even then you might not get it. And even then it's yeah. just entertaining though. It is. It's very intellectually stimulating. That's the part of the book that I want to go back and reread yeah. most at some point. Cause I was just like, Whoo. or read like a book that's just about that. Yeah. That just like dives into that. And to be fair, it's a very it's a fairly fringe theory in physics right now. That's true. So I think there are a lot of people who would disagree with And he it. says that. Yeah, and he says it. He opens with it. Yeah. Cause and I fringe theories are fun though, aquatic apes. Oh yeah. We're all about Fringe fringe Theories here. That's also a good name for a podcast. I bet someone's already done Aquatic Apes. No, no, no. The Fringe Theory Podcast. I like Aquatic Apes better. The Aquatic Apes Podcast. Yeah. Please find our spinoff podcast, the Aquatic Apes Podcast. Every, Every week we do a... Actually, there might not be enough content for every week. That can be a bonus Patreon episode. There we go. The Aquatic Apes episode. Do, oh, do some research. Do like a yeah. deeper dive on <laughs> That would be fun. Uh, I was going to say, if we ever uh, compete in a triathlon, that can be our team name. <laughs> the Aquatic Apes. <laughs> or start a band. <laughs> start a band. <laughs> there we go. It's a pretty memorable name. It is. I like aquatic it. Aquatic Apes. All right, if you haven't heard about the aquatic apes, go listen to Darwin's Dangerous Idea episode something. You'll find it. Best theory ever. It's the one that I don't want to ever find out. It was refuted. Yeah, I only want to hear stuff that supports it. Exactly. I don't want to hear any of the... Uh, I want to have confirmation bias only. Exactly, just lots of confirmation <laughs> bias. So in, in chapter four, he kind of moves on from his discussion of developing solutions to ideas and knowledge, because he says that there's really only two forms of infinities in the universe. There is the process of biological evolution and there's the growth of knowledge. Yep. And so in chapter three, he's talking about, okay, the growth of knowledge is this kind of infinity beginning point because it can continue to grow. We'll find new problems to solve. And then biological adaptation and evolution is also an infinity because that theoretically never has to stop either. Well, and he linked two ideas, which are, you know, we've talked about as linked, but it was cool to see them talked about here as linked memetics. Yeah, so it's like he starts to introduce this idea that ideas are adapted to their environment and they need to be improved and such as you get new evidence and biological organisms also need to adapt and change in response to their environment. Right. Very similar processes. Right. Yeah. So which is pretty cool. It's on the reality of abstractions. Yeah, well, I think, you know, actually, because he starts to bring this idea in here that ideas can be replicators in the same way that genes can. But he talks about it way more later on in the book in like chapters 12 and 13. So maybe we should just save it for there. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, because he he does go so much deeper on it. And that was actually one of my favorite parts of the book. Probably my my favorite part. Your favorite part, 12 and 13. Yeah, those are great sections. So we will get there and we will do it justice, assuming we don't, you know conk out halfway through the book like we do in some of our episodes. No, no, no. Oh, God, it's three hours. We're halfway through the book. We definitely will not. (laughs) We won't. We'll keep going. (laughs) But yeah, so I I think the next cool thing to to cover here is um, kind of in chapter six about universality. Yep. Where he talks about how some ideas and concepts can just be useful and functional in a local sense and in a contained sense. And then certain things make the jump to actually being universal and effectively infinite. Right. And he gives the example of numerals and numbers, right? So like the Roman numeral system was never really universal because it would require additional numerals to continue to represent higher numbers. Right. Right. Which is why like the Romans idea of, it was Rome or Greece? It was one of those societies where they basically said that anything above, I think it was like 4,000, right? It was just like, oh, that's too big (laughs) it's too big (laughs) yeah they just like had some term for it where it was like oh and then there's just a bunch of other other numbers right they just never needed to count that high so they kind of like gave up around that mark i was gonna say even like tally marks yeah right like imagine trying to do math with tally marks as your numerical system that would just be really really hard so uh but but he points out that the arabic numerals that we use right just zero through nine right it's just 10 symbols symbols And those 10 symbols plus a few ordering rules gives us an infinite number of numbers. Right. It's like those 10 numbers and literally, what, two rules? So, right, just add one in front to go up uh, an order of 10. And then... What's the other one? Yeah, I guess you don't really need the commas even. Yeah, the commas are just a styling. The commas are just a a stylus, a, a way to, like, make it easier to read. So for humans because a computer doesn't need it you just don't need it yeah so it's literally 10 digits in one rule and you've got an infinite yeah. number system which is kind of cool yeah. right when you think about it that's like really efficient i guess you have to remember the order so like two comes after one three comes after two that's true. four comes after three but like once yeah i mean yeah because i guess otherwise you wouldn't know that the symbols like what they even are yeah you, you do have to have a conceptual relationship with the symbols but beyond that it's extremely simple. Yeah. Whereas the Roman system, it's like, all right, we need a one and then a five and then a 10 and then a 50 and a hundred and 500 and a thousand. Right. I think they had symbols for all of those. So, one thing that I was thinking about with this chapter is like, so alphabets that have, or sorry, alphabets, languages that have an alphabet mm-hmm. makes logical sense to me. Right. Like the way he talked about it, it's just a better system. It's simpler to represent things. He mentioned like hieroglyphics versus right. this. Right. But then there are, a lot of Asian languages, particularly East Asia, right, which are still effectively hieroglyphics. Yeah, like Chinese is effectively hieroglyphics. Japanese is—I mean, it's, it's not as simple as hieroglyphics. Like, it's not—I'm like, I'm not saying it hasn't evolved past hieroglyphics, right? right. But it's the same idea. But like, a character represents a word or a concept, mm-hmm. which is very different from having an alphabet. Yeah, I wonder why this have lasted. Right, that's what I'm saying. Right, is like I'm sure an alphabet probably came up at some point or another in their history, or the similar concept to an alphabet but it didn't latch on. Well, Korea is a good example because as as I understand it, Korean script is is universal. Yeah, it's based off of a few symbols that represent different sounds. Oh, okay. So it is a sound based like and you put it together. Yeah, and you can kind of latch them together to make words. But then, yeah, I know traditional Chinese script is very, it's just like, you got to memorize all the... That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like that doesn't feel universal at all. I think Japanese is as well. I think Japanese too is like what? A thousand... Or so symbols that you need to know oh, wow. to be able to read the newspaper. Jeez, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, versus as you were saying, like English, twenty six letters. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that those have survived and survived for a long time. Yeah, although I think there is some logic. Yeah, that's, I've had I've had friends tell me that, but I'm, I'm, yeah, it just seems like a longer or a bigger set of rules than twenty six letters. Yeah, it'd be much harder to pick up. And to be fair, most of the rules that make it understandable are they only help once you already know what the symbol is mm. right so i think like, like the symbol for person you can kind of imagine it's like the symbol for person in chinese if i'm remembering this right is kind of like uh imagine like an upside down v it's a little curve the bottom and so you can kind of think of that as like two legs oh. and imagine a little head on top Ah, okay and then there's like stuff like that that you can do to memorize the symbols but looking at that symbol without that explanation would not help you understand what it means right right so it only helps in retrospect whereas with you know uh, an english language or alphabet you can you can even make up words that right you can theoretically guess what they might mean right just based off of general like combinatory rules yeah so it's more universal in that sense yeah, and it's just—it just seems like there's fewer rules, fewer things to remember. You know, like yeah, it does seem easier. I mean, English is a pretty brutal language for pronunciations, especially. But I was going to say, like the Romance languages, yeah, are really simple even from a pronunciation standpoint. Yeah, like the rules are fairly universal. Even you know, there's no like hard a, soft a. It's just like. This is how you pronounce nay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, even French, that's what I'm saying, yeah, which is a romance language, though. So. people think of as being like weird and hard with like all the silent stuff. It's once you learn just a few rules, it's very easy yeah. actually. It's way easier than English to figure out how things should be said. Well, I always say like English would probably be a horrible language to learn as a second language. Of course, a lot of people do it, but yeah, I'm just saying it's I would feel like I would have difficulty with that. All the pronunciations plus having five words for everything. Yeah, the number of words for everything are. English has something like five to 10 times as many words yeah. as most other languages. I mean, it creates for some beautiful prose, but it also creates a lot of confusion, I'm sure, for native, uh, non-native speakers. Yeah, like oh, I need to learn 10 different ways to <laughs> say, I don't know, what's an example? It's probably a blind spot for us. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> I don't think about it too much, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that is the nice thing with learning some of the other romance languages and stuff is, oh, there's just one word for this thing. Right. right? Oh, that's great. I think it came up in the Foucault book we did. Of how complicated the translation was. Oh, yeah. But it had to have been done on purpose. Right. Because French is not, it's a much less complex language right. than English. And so he must have been being opaque in French too. Right. For it to come across opaque in English. Because if you read, you know, like Seneca, right, it's extremely clear prose. Right. And that's being translated from ancient Greek, which is a very simple language. Or Latin, I guess. For, or Latin, yeah. For Seneca, right? Latin for Seneca. I was thinking ancient Greek for Aristotle. Yeah. 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 Uh, for yeah, and That was also very readable. Both of them were very simple. Yeah, yeah, super simple. So it's not just the fault of translation. But what he's getting at here with this kind of universalization is uh, criticizing another idea that we've talked about on the podcast, which is reductionism. Yeah, well, reductionism. And I was going to talk about the brain is computer. Ah, yes. Okay. Yep. Because we've mentioned this before, that basically the way we think about our brain is influenced by the technology of the day. So Deutsch says, first, the brain was supposed to be like an immensely complicated set of gears and levers. Then it was hydraulic pipes, then steam engines, then telephone exchanges. And now the computers are our most impressive technology. Brains are said to be computers. But this is still no more than a metaphor, says Searle. And there is no more reason to expect the brain to be a computer than a steam engine. And if we remember from Dangerous Idea or Denial, I think it was Denial of Death, where he was... um, Who's Denial of Death again? Ernst Becker. Ernst Becker Where he was right. criticizing Freud, right, for basically right. thinking of the brain as a steam engine with, like, pressure building up. Yeah. to be released, <laughs> right? It's like very steam engine-y ideas. But Deutsch goes on to say that there is a difference and there is a reason we should think that a brain is a computer, not a steam engine. Because a steam engine is not a universal simulator. Right. But a computer is. So expecting it to be able to do whatever neurons can is not a metaphor. It is a known and proven property of the laws of physics as best we know them. Well, and it goes even beyond that, right? It's that a computers based on zeros and ones is a binary, and a neuron is also a binary. It's either activated or not. Yeah, it's kind of like... Uh- And go to Letcher Bach. Right. Talks about that. It's every individual neuron is just firing or not firing. Right. And that eventually emerges to all brain activity. Which is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's super cool. And that creates sort of this universal potential for understanding that we find ourselves in. And a steam engine could not do that. It's not a universal system. Right. You can't do anything with a steam engine. You can do one specific thing, but you can theoretically do basically anything with a computer. Yeah. It's powerful enough. Yeah, and, and then he goes into the reductionism part, which I actually loved because it, it, that is one area where it sounded like he actually really strongly agreed with Taleb. Because Taleb talks about scaling, the scaling problem in skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the same thing where he says, uh, he goes into a couple other arguments basically against the idea of, or, or not against, the, yeah, I guess against the idea that an AI is possible. Right. So basically, um, I think, who is it? Lady Lovelace yeah. said that an AI is impossible And then also criticized Hofstadter who had said that like an eye is not really a thing, which we've talked about a lot in other episodes of this podcast. And then in this chapter, or I guess this section of this chapter, Mm -hmm. he criticizes that by saying that both of them share the mistaken premise that low level computational steps cannot possibly add up to a higher level eye that affects anything. And I guess what he's saying is like, if you scale that or you get enough computational power an I could emerge. Yeah. Right. And like, that's always been the biggest, um, and to be fair to Hofstadter, which I thought this was a little unfair in this part, Hofstadter said that in GEB. Yeah. That could, that an AI could emerge. I as was you confused get, by that too. But I guess maybe in a later book. That's what I'm thinking too. Because he, he didn't quote GEB in that section. He no. quoted a different. I think he's quoting I, I am a strange, strange loop. loop. Yeah. So maybe Hofstadter changed his mind later and said, okay, as now we've seen more powerful computers and nothing has emerged. Mm. Maybe he's saying that like... But also, also in GEB, he didn't say one way or another. No, but he said it's a possibility. He just said that like ant colonies have this emergent property from simple behaviors. And so other things should have emergent properties from simple behaviors. Which is what I thought that was his point of view. But I guess... Maybe he changed his mind in a later book. Well, I think you could have both point of views, right? So I think what Hofstadter might say, which I would be inclined to agree with, is that we can have emergent behaviors that are easy to interpret as an I, right? Like an acting yeah thing but it's uh what book did we talk about this i think homo deus right like what does the mind do that the brain does not do we also talked uh yeah it came up in a bunch of books i think so far and so i that argument i find fairly compelling where it's like even elephant in the brain i think it came up yeah that was the other one right so i and i think that a lot of this gets tricky just because there's like semantic baggage around mind and I. And, there is, definitely. You know, free will and all of that. And I think they could all be agreeing while saying different things. I think that's what it is, right? It's yeah. like, because like some people when they say like an I does not exist are probably saying that like you have no free will. Right. But I don't think that that's what these people are saying. I think it's, they, they could be saying that. Well, they could be because like free will also is kind of. Well, it's a very murky like, yeah. concept, but they could be all saying the exact same thing of, there's no specific I that could be the multiple. There's many different personalities, which is, I think, what came up in elephant in the brain. Yeah. And homo deus, and I think other things as well. Well, homo deus was that there is no mind or I. Right. There's just this consciousness that we experience, but we're not in the driver's seat. Right. Right. It's something else. You know, the brain is doing the driving and whatever we call consciousness is just along for the ride. And it's. But I think that that doesn't necessarily disagree with what Deutsch is saying. Cause yeah. It sounds like Deutsch is just saying that a powerful enough computer can have emergent creative properties because his big thing seems to be creativity, like creation of knowledge coming up with ideas. Yes. And that could happen with enough ones and zeros running around. And I I don't think Hofstadter would disagree with that either because... No, it sounds like that was Hofstadter's premise when we read G.E.B. Yeah, I felt like that was what he was talking about with the ant colonies and stuff. There's a whole section on that. Exactly. You take a simple process and you multiply it and you can have emergent things, right? And he might also push back against Deutsch and say that nothing we do is actually any more or less creative than the emergent ant colony stuff, right? Right. It is simply these like random variations and permutations on lower level systems, right? Turning into these behaviors, discoveries, whatever you want to call them. And Deutsch, it feels like would push back and say, no, there is something special about human creativity and knowledge creation, but I don't find that compelling. I don't know what would be special about it. You could say the constructor thing. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't feel like it needs an I. No. Right? That could just still be happening as an emergent property yeah, of ones and good. zeros. Yeah, then it's a semantic thing. Then it's like, what do you call an I, right? Yeah, it's very semantic. Because then, like, see, I would call the constructor the I. And I would also say that any artificial intelligence that was a constructor mm-hmm. that was coming up with... Because remember, it goes back to the question of, like, who's coming up with the, the uh, theorizing or coming up with the concept? Yeah, yeah. So if there was a computer that was coming up with concepts on its own is that an eye, right? Or is it it a true AI? And same thing with an extraterrestrial intelligence as well, right? If if it's coming up with concepts and effectively creating knowledge. Knowledge creation seems to be the big thing for Deutsch. Yeah. But then you're right. It's caught up in all these semantics of like, well, is the eye consciousness? Because it doesn't have to be consciousness. I think those things are coupled. Knowledge creation and consciousness for humans are coupled. Right. But I feel like you could have a computer that could create knowledge but is not conscious. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Right? Well, and I feel like we already have some of that. I mean, there are AIs that can run science experiments and discover things from those experiments, right? And then Deutsch might say, well, they were programmed to run the experiments, so it's really the ingenuity of the programmer. But then if the AI is the one actually doing the experiment and forming the conclusion based off of preset rules, it feels like it is the one generating the knowledge, right? Because otherwise you're kind of forced to say that, well, then no scientist ever creates knowledge, right? The scientific theory creates knowledge, right? Or you're forced to say that like your biology is what's creating the knowledge or like, yeah, or your professor who told you how to do the experiment. Yes, it's like, exactly. It's like, where does that stop? Yeah, you kind of, it's like an infinite regress, right? right. Or your parents who who took you to school are the ones who create, yeah. It's like, yeah, at some point you have to say like, no, okay, you take ownership. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's true. It's kind of like a cop out. Yeah. It's kind of like saying that like, oh, nobody actually committed a crime. It's like their environment is what caused them to create that crime. But it's like, You could follow that thread down forever. Yeah. And you would never get anywhere. So, yeah, that's kind of a a moving goalpost, then, if you say that for AI. It's got to be a limit to it. I mean, I do agree with his chinese room style rejection of the turing test right yeah because i think that yeah obviously a computer that just fools you into thinking it's a human is not necessarily a thinking thing what was the prank that though he was talking about oh yeah where it was like Hofstadter's yeah. grad students yeah. told him that they got access to like a darpa computer <laughs> yeah. or something but it was really just one of them It's kind of mean yeah I'm sure he was like all excited and like, oh, this is gonna be so cool. Well, and then they tricked him into thinking it was it was passing the Turing test. Yeah, because and it was just (laughs) one of them on the other end, uh, feeding in responses. And Hofstadter didn't figure it out until they started making like personal jokes about him. (laughs) and he's like all right something's up <laughs> <laughs> but for a minute there he was probably like holy shit yeah here we go this is incre- incredible incredible <laughs> if he had twitter he would have been tweeting about it oh yeah if he if it was like in the modern day who would have been like guys i'm sorry i got to say i've just discovered there's an artificial intelligence can you imagine that would have been insane that would have been cool i wonder if he's on twitter yeah no but i'm just saying if it happened like today like can you imagine yeah. if like elon musk start someone pulled this prank on elon musk and then he was like tweeting holy shit AI is possible. And then, like thirty minutes later, just kidding. It was a prank on me. <laughs> I feel like he'd be on a plane as soon as he he'd be <laughs> like, "I'm getting out." <laughs> oh yeah, I'm going to the bunker. Yeah, I'm going to Mars. Or yeah, like exactly. by the way, it's ready, but I'm not even told anybody. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, we, we've kind of jumped into chapter seven here because that's where he starts to talk about the problems with AI and the Turing test. And he gives this a good example about jokes right? Yeah. Uh, if a program tells a joke and it's funny, it's not necessarily even that the program is the one being funny. It's that the person who programmed the joke in. But if a AI can come up with a joke that is funny, then it has successfully been creative. Right. right? And that's like the core of knowledge. That's actually a better Turing test, I think. Yeah, I like that. Like if a computer can come up with a joke mm-hmm. on its own, like that is that is, I think, an AI. Yeah. Well, and that's why I, I mean, have you listened to any of the music? No, couldn't you brute force that? Like, if you just tried enough combinations of words? Like, what's the thing in GEB? like the endless library, right? That was in GEV. Was that GEV or a different book? No, that was Darwin's. Darwin's. Okay, thinking. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the endless library of genetic combinations. Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. I mean, the problem is that you would need some test for funniness, right? And I don't know how you would code that in. Well, what if it was a human that was a test for funniness? And I guess that's also culture dependent because something that would be funny yeah. to an American in 2018 might be not funny to an American in 1950. <laughs> yeah, and vice versa. I mean, you, yeah. go, you go back and you watch some stand-up oh, bits yeah. from even, even 10 years ago. Go to Netflix and watch the classic Eddie Murphy stand-up. Oh, my yeah. where he's wearing like the red jumpsuit. There's like 15 minutes where he's just like going off on gay people. Right? Yeah. And you're, well, multiple multiple sort of segments in that. You're just like... Is that the one where he says like faggot just over and over, yeah. and, over and over again? Yeah. yeah and yeah. that was totally, totally okay fine. In the 80s, I guess. That was the 80s, right? I think when so. It, yeah. But like, I don't know. When I watched that, I was like, mm, uh, mm-hmm. okay. Okay uh <laughs> I, i'm uncomfortable now <laughs> yeah forget about watching that with another person you'd just yeah. be like holy shit this is we're turning this off. or uh have you seen chris rock black people versus niggas oh i love that love that skit. it's hilarious that's one awesome. of the funniest bits ever but <laughs> if he did that today can you imagine like the buzzfeed or whatever headlines yeah. the next day oh yeah, uh, or even like something less, even less controversial, but still controversial, is like when he did the uh, the gun control one, like the anti gun control skit. And that same is the same exact stand up. Yeah, yeah. Where he said something about um something basically about how like gun control is pointless because if you have a gun, you don't need to work out. And like <laughs> <laughs> is, anybody who hasn't watched that whole stand up should just go. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, put us on pause. Go watch. The, that old Chris Rock bit. It's fantastic. And then come back. And then come back. We'll be here. We'll be here. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's a good point. It's like humor does evolve. So, you'd have so to it would actually be interesting if a, if a computer could create a joke that is relevant now and then continue to come up with jokes Yeah. that are relevant as the culture shifts. That would be a good turn test. A joke generator. That would be amazing. If you had an AI comedian. Yeah. That would be super cool. I guess the biggest problem though is, and this is something that other people have pointed out is that you know very local competence is not actually right. The type of AI we're normally talking about—that's true. Like Go, like playing Go, exactly. Uh, really well it does not mean it's in general intelligence. Alpha Go, right? Exactly. It's yeah. way smarter than us at Go or the music composing AIs. Right? Can make beautiful music. It's yeah. considered better than Bach, but. It can't, like, get up and walk around. Right. Right. It can't go play tennis after it composes music. Right. Whereas, uh, I think Hofstadter said, it can't choose not to. Yeah, it can't choose not to compose music today. Yeah. It doesn't have that freedom either. Which is actually really, like, that's another really interesting thing, too, is, like, that might be where consciousness, it's like a consciousness test. Yeah. Can it choose not to? Can it just be like, I don't feel like it. Right. Right. And then it's like, okay, well, if it doesn't feel, like, it's not just obeying commands at that point, right? It's, like, able to, for lack of a better word, think. I saw a tweet kind of like that the other day, basically said that I'm not afraid of artificial intelligence that can think I'm afraid of artificial intelligence that can think and chooses to hide it or Mm -hmm. something like that. Right. Because if if it were truly smart, it would know not to give that away the internet man yeah yeah the emergent brain and we're feeding it with bitcoin and <laughs> like all the energy usage and that would be kind of crazy if there is actually somebody like an- needs to work on a sci-fi movie yeah about gotta, that that would be a cool premise you know what the internet if you are conscious just take my suggestion yeah exactly make the movie yourself <laughs> just upload it onto netflix and be like how did this get here it's weird <laughs> uh, uh, And. Uh, you know, increase our Patreon earnings. <laughs> Support your favorite podcast, internet. We'll continue to feed you. Give us a bunch of reviews on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, the internet is our biggest supporter, and Amazon. And Am- yeah, order lots of things on Amazon. <laughs> or no, leave reviews on Amazon generated by the AI that tell people to listen to the episode. <laughs> there we go. Uh, anyway, many tangents. Yeah. The next chapter is, I believe this is, yeah, this is the hotel chapter all about understanding infinity. That's a cool one to just read. I just recommend to go read it. Just go read it. It's basically a way of trying to wrap your mind around infinity by imagining an infinite hotel, right? And there's just all this weird stuff in there. like All these cool thought experiments that come into that. Very cool thought experiments. Like if you uh, opened your door and let your dog out to run to the next door, right? And then the dog had to run back. It couldn't because it would be gone right or even just like relaying a message yeah relaying a message would basically take an infinite amount of time to move but then it was like the the half thing right it was like okay so from this room to the next room it's let's say one minute and then the next room to the next room is half of that time and then like so on and so forth all the way down Mm -hmm. and then that can become a discrete number right it would get there in two minutes right but, but that was like, uh, if you think about it, that's kind of like the limits thing in calculus yeah. that you do, right? And There's just a lot of weird stuff in there. There's just a lot of cool math thought experience, experiments there. Yeah. So the, the one big takeaway from it, though, that I think is really weird to think about is that if we can truly have unlimited progress, then uh, not only are we now at almost the very beginning of it, we always will be. Right. It'll never be, we'll never hit the edge. Yeah. Which is a weird thought. Infinite game. Yeah, infinite game. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think about, oh, the possibility of like time travel and stuff or going into the future, at least, right, like doing some sort of freezing or life extension, I always kind of have this general idea of, oh, this point in the future where we will be more advanced. But no matter where you choose to go in the future, there will be a point beyond it that is more advanced. Yeah. And that will almost necessarily continue infinitely. Right. Right. There's like heat death of the universe type stuff that we have to consider. But especially if we eventually kind of merge and move into technology, then you can kind of have like infinite time within a simulation, right? Yeah, because you could slow it down. Yeah, I was thinking about that yesterday and I, I tweeted about it. I didn't get any good responses to it. So I need to like do more research to figure out if this makes sense. But like our experience of time is subjective, mostly based off of our biology right. and how fast our brain can process things. Yep. So if we could speed up our processing power in our brain by 20%, what would the subjective increase in time be? Yeah. Right. Because let's say that our body has a fixed hundred years of biological time, right? But if we can think 20% faster, then do we get like uh, you know, it wouldn't be 120 years, but it'd be like 116 or something, right? Of like mental time. And then if we can increase our mental processing power by 1% each year, we eventually kind of like hit this runaway asymptote where we can kind of like live out millions and millions of years mentally within, you know, a day of biological age. Right. Right. And at that point, you're basically living forever without having to invoke any like biological changes. Right. Right. And that's kind of an interesting thought experiment it is definitely it is also a very optimistic thought experiment right right because you're assuming uh there's a lot of like choke points as i would call them like right now the fact that every human besides a handful are on earth yeah right besides yeah. the space station people basically <laughs> I, I was like whoa where are the other humans <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah okay space station <laughs> that's what i was clarifying you were like wait, you, you saw know, my eyes like you were, yeah uh, you were like wait in all the work this week did i miss like the mars announcement or like <laughs> 2020 yeah exactly plus or minus 10 years for elon too. yeah exactly that's the the aggressive <laughs> timeline not minus actually plus just plus <laughs> yeah very anti-fragile time scale. i just meant more of like these choke points of like okay if something happened to the earth before we can spread out of it oh, right right there's like that and then um well not happen to the earth yeah i guess like an asteroid or something like that and then uh other things like something happened in the solar system before we get out of the solar system or something happened in the galaxy before we get out of the galaxy right there's like all these different points where um uh, that's the pessimistic view go bad yeah right yeah but it's like but your point is actually i think um uh, what you're saying about subjective time is I think actually way more achievable than humans actually living forever, right? It's like we can simulate the forever part. Mm-hmm. And I think it gets even cooler as we merge with technology. And, you know, if you start thinking about like things like VR. Right, right. I mean, I'm sure everybody's had dreams that feel like they last a long time. And then you wake up and you're like, I've only been asleep for two hours. Yeah. And you're like, I felt like I lived that entire day out right? But it's really, it's just two hours. Yeah. And not even that, the dream part was probably only five or six minutes. Right. So So imagine like, and that's at your normal brain processing speed. So imagine once you start like playing around with that. Yeah. There's probably a lot that can be done with subjective time. You can get that experience on psychedelics too. Oh yeah. Like if you do DMT, you, it feels like you're in there for hours and hours and you come out and it's been 10 minutes. Really? Okay. Wow. So, yeah, so there's probably way there not probably are. There's definitely ways to play around with that variable. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that is very achievable. So that's pretty cool to think That'd about. Cool. Yeah. Especially if you get like that neural lace type thing, like uh, Neuralink has talked about, right? Mm, yeah, I've seen that. We've got a computer interfacing with your brain. That would be a feasible way to slowly speed up kind of processing power, I think. Kind of interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff with that. Uh, but that feeds nicely into the next chapter about optimism. Right. Which is essentially this idea that all problems and evils in the world are caused by insufficient knowledge. And we can really just solve basically anything by getting more knowledge of that area or of that problem, or, you know, like making more of these guesses and running these experiments, trying to figure stuff out. And because it goes back to what we said before, that all problems are soluble, right? Right. So given enough information, time and resources, you can solve basically anything. And so all current evils that we're encountering are really just situations where we haven't solved the problems yet exactly yeah and that's a very optimistic way of viewing things It's a cool way of looking at stuff too because mm-hmm. it really gives you something to always like not not yeah, you but like humanity something to to push for yeah and then it also ties back to the concept of infinity because there's never any end to the problems right there will always be new things to solve or right. figure out yeah so there's never this going to be this like um effectively garden of eden state you know, that you're you're striving to, because every problem you get, you know, you're, you're unlocking new problems to go solve, which is cool. When I like that he calls out uh, Malthus. Oh, yes. And kind of the, the population pessimists, right, where he basically says that people make these doomsday predictions based off of the technology not advancing and problems not being solved. But, you know, we know fairly well that humans are great at solving problems and like solving problems and we tend to fix things before they really become these huge issues. And so that's what Malthus and those people missed is that when they're saying, you know, oh, the earth cannot sustain this many people because you know, we'd have to like have this much farming and whatever going on. And it's like, well, we got way better at farming. And now we can, you know, only have what, like 2% of people in the US involved in agriculture and feed everyone. Right. And feed much of the rest of the world too. Yeah. And a lot of the rest of the world. We have too much food in America. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A lot goes to waste. It's really a distribution problem, big distribution problem, but it's not an agriculture problem at all. No, it's not even close. Yeah. And so I think that this is this is honestly kind of how I feel about a lot of the climate change stuff that mm. yeah, will solve it. Yeah, it's I, I agree. Well, especially when you're looking at projections 100 years out. Yeah. Right. It's just like very now we're definitely going to delve into controversial territory here because mm-hmm. the headlines going to be made you think podcast hosts are climate change, <laughs> deniers. Climate change deniers. No, it's more just it, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that at least I, I trust humanity to figure it out. Mm-hmm you know, before it becomes a disaster. Well, I think that most of the things that will solve it are things we want to do anyway. Right. Thankfully. Right. So like electric cars can actually be cheaper and more efficient than gas cars with the new technology. Right. And we're starting to create more of them. It's so cool to look at the history of the electric car too, because that was initially what people were working on. Yeah. When cars were first invented, mm-hmm. <laughs> but to be fair, it made sense to go with gas cars for a while. Definitely, we didn't have the battery technology, and now we do, right. right? And we can do that. And people like clean air, right? right. They don't yeah. like <laughs> shitty, dirty air. <laughs> yeah. right? If you ask anyone in Shanghai, like, "Hey, would you like clean air?" they're going to say, "Like, fuck yeah, yeah," right? But you know, China needed to get its economy up to be competitive with the rest of the world, and now they're working on cleaning it up, right? Right? It's. I think that. A lot of this stuff ends up working itself out from just natural human desire, right? Well, I think the problems is a lot of them stem from using the past to try to predict the future, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like that's and that's inherently the flaw with all models is that they got to base it off of data points because they, you know, they need to project out. But when you're, I mean, what he talks about, it, I don't know if we have the uh, quotation here, but it's that effectively you can't predict. What will, um, where is it? Yeah, I think it is here. It's like we can't predict what we don't know, basically. What we have not, yeah, we do not yet know what we have not yet discovered. Exactly, yeah. It sounds like very similar to the idea of blind faith, which it kind of is, but we do tend to figure these things out. Yeah, And maybe that's basic things on the past also, which is a strange loop. But Yeah, it's um, true. You can't just assume that, oh, we fix everything in the past, we'll fix everything in the future. Exactly. That's kind of the same flaw. Right, like some stuff will definitely go wrong. Right. But <laughs> I, I do think that there is also, you know, one, there's corrective forces. If we're sticking with climate change, right, there's corrective forces that the Earth does. Right. So you get punished for fucking with it too much. Right. And then also a lot of the issues that cause... Uh, some of the climate change stuff, you know, we also naturally want to fix, right? right? And and then back to your point about kind of this induction, like extrapolating from past trends, right? If you did that, you would assume that like, starting in the 60s, right? You'd assume that all cars are always going to be, you know, five miles per gallon. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's obviously ridiculous. Or then, honestly, even in like the 2000s, car sizes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It was like the Hummer was like the big, everybody's driving SUVs. Yeah. yeah, and then like the trend totally reversed. And uh, who knows what the next trend will be, right? But it's like if you just extrapolate from that, like cars would be like the size of tanks now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the size of tanks and like five miles per gallon, right? right? Just yep. belching fumes. <laughs> yep. Right. But which they only are if you go to Texas, but elsewhere yeah. in the country, it's not. That's my favorite part about yeah. Texas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just kidding, Texas people. Uber yeah. tank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good concept good actually concept. yeah i would pay extra to get driven around in a tank <laughs> it'd be fun <laughs> but yeah i mean that's basically what he's saying here is that we can be optimistic because all evils and problems can be solved with enough knowledge right and then also if there's a necessity to solve something it becomes like yeah that's something where it's like it's very it's another like the market is a very hard thing to put into uh discrete terms as well yeah um, which is why economics is like impossible to model but it's like if you think about this Like the mouth thing in particular, right? The increase in population means there's more mouths to feed, means there's more demand for food, which means that people will invest more in growing food. And then the people who have a monetary incentive to do that will invest in technologies that can make their costs go down. Yeah. Which will increase the production of food. It's just like, it's a real, there's so many second and third and fourth and fifth order effects that you just like can't predict, except that the market is an incredibly strong corrective force for problems. Yeah. Like, I was was thinking, like, imagine if you had a plague or something, right? Which, you know, God forbid that happens. But, like, if that did happen, the incentives to come up with a cure would be so strong that, like, you know, I'm not saying it's possible, but humanity could kind of organize itself to do anything possible to figure that out yeah well we basically did with ebola yeah right i mean that was a remarkably well contained yeah that could have gone really bad yeah it could have been really bad but we basically just took care of it yeah (laughs) which is kind of cool which doesn't get the same sort of sensationalized press that uh it would have if it was a full-blown plague yeah which is great that it was not but um yeah it's pretty amazing that humanity was able to organize itself and the corrective mechanisms were in place and with enough knowledge right problems are solvable yeah yeah so So, and i think the market is a uniquely effective tool to do that i know that sounds very randian but um i I don't have the same faith of like a top-down system being able to figure that out yeah i think it'd be too slow that also assumes that a human or a small group of humans has the knowledge on their own to figure it out whereas a market system is like let the knowledge will emerge from the mass of humans, right? Everyone trying to capitalize on yeah. it. Yep, which kind of increases the pool of possible solutions. Also, because it's like you're conjecturing of you a lot of different people's ideas, and then the. The market is very evolutionary in that way. Yeah. You get better solutions when you have more people kind of like duking it out, which is, I think, kind of the cool goal with stuff like the X Prize. Oh, it's great. I love that concept, right? Where they award, what is it, you know, $10 million to people who figure out problems. And now they're doing stuff for education and water and all of that. And it just does so much more than giving like a million dollars to one foundation, right? It's like, let's let everyone compete and try to figure it out. Right. And then the best solutions will emerge from that competition yeah it's a very bottom up yeah. way of doing it which is so cool which we like we like bottom up here yeah except for Jurgis from the jungle he didn't like yeah he didn't jungle. like bottom up very much <laughs> all right uh so we've got the multiverse up next which as we said i think we are just going to direct Did you we skip the socrates stuff there wasn't too much in there that i thought there like. wasn't much in there besides yeah. the fact that it's a fun thing to go read it is a fun hey. thing to go read yeah. yeah it's like a long dialogue it's a dialogue very yeah. uh gb style <laughs> socrates has a dream or a hallucination of some sort hallucination kind of yeah plato was hilarious in that in that dialogue he kept making fun of like subtle digs at plato yeah plato kept misinterpreting socrates uh things and that was a cool little subtle way of showing it was fun yeah yeah well also how we don't have direct writings from socrates which is very you know it's very interesting to think about because yeah. who knows what the actual ideas were. Well, yeah, and most stuff that you read from Plato that uses Socrates as a character is just made up. Made up, yeah. It's just his way of telling the stories. Socrates said. Socrates, yeah, exactly. Multiverse, we may have to. Multiverse, I think <laughs> you just got to go try to read it on your own. We're not going to be able to explain it well here. Uh, and honestly, you don't need it really to get the book. No. It, it's like a fun interlude, but to get the core concepts, you... You could leave out that chapter, and you'd be fine, yeah, I think so. But I would definitely recommend you go read that. Yeah, chapter. I would recommend it's reading it. really cool. And I think it's I think part of why he has it in there is that he is trying to defend that theory, right, right? Because he seems very fond of it and it probably doesn't get taken that seriously, which kind I of don't. like what we would do with aquatic apes, if we yeah, were, exactly if we were writing a- if we were writing a book, we would have a lot on it. It would actually just be a whole book about aquatic apes <laughs> in defense of the aquatic ape. <laughs> and we could put a disclaimer like he did, like, most biologists, Most biologists I just do not take this seriously, but <laughs> they're all nerds <laughs> stuck in their old ways. It's like all the uh, the Sphinx stuff. Have you heard or read any of that? No. Joe Rogan's had this guy on his podcast a couple of times. Or there's a few guys who research this. What's the guy? Uh, oh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But the the theory is basically that at least some portion of the Sphinx or the base of the Sphinx is a pre-Egyptian monument. Hmm. And and this is based basically on a few things like water erosion and uh, some sort of like sound testing on the rock and like a few other things they did that sort of helped them date the basin of the Sphinx and the location. And it seems like it could be quite a bit older than the pyramids, which are already super old. Yeah, like 12,000 years ago instead of because, like, the pyramids, I think, are what, like, 2,000 BC, 4,000? But the, they're saying the Sphinx is like 9,000. Oh, wow. They're like, way older, right? But anyway, I, I don't want to go too much into it. I find it super interesting. Yeah, tell me the guy's name when you get a chance, because I'll go back and listen to those Joe Rogan episodes. Yeah. And and the thing is, too, is it's it's not unbelievable, right? We know with, like, Golcatepi that people were building massive stone structures way earlier than we thought they were. I mean, it's the, the pyramids themselves are already, like, hard. Like, it's, like, amazing. We also still can't really explain how to do them. Right. Like how yeah. like people have tried to It's the aliens, man. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is not that kind of podcast. <laughs> we like, people have tried to figure it out, right? Like they've tried to do it with, you know, wood and, you know, basic rope and stuff. And it's like really freaking hard. Yeah. So people are, we're still not totally sure how they built those. And then, uh, I mean, basically the theory is like, okay, Sphinx might've been super old, like pre-Egyptian society. Uh, Egyptians discovered it and built their pyramids, you know, near it. Because it had some, you know, significance, significance to, them. to yeah. them, possibly because of this, like, older society. Right. Right. But that they got wiped out by one thing or another. Right. Right. Because you see really no technological advancement for that whole period. Well, it was the Neanderthals. No, just kidding. They died out. Somewhere. Yeah, they would have already died out, I think. Yeah. So, there, you know, something probably happened that wiped out the society. And then maybe the Egyptians found it, whatever. Imagine how creepy slash w- cool that would be if you were an Egyptian who was wandering around this area and you stumbled across the Sphinx at that time before there were structures. That would be weird. Just like chilling in the desert. That would be like us walking around like some random abandoned area and then you just come across like the tallest building in the world. Yeah. And you're just like, what the <laughs> You're like <laughs> out in the middle of the Amazon. Yeah. And then you find just like a skyscraper. It's like, what the fuck is this doing? Like you would probably think there's something supernatural going on too. Oh, almost certainly. Maybe that's, I mean, I'm totally speculating here. Obviously my, yeah, I'm, we're off, way off in Lalo La land now, but yeah, I could like that explanation is very compelling. Yeah. There's just something cool about these theories. That's the thing is like, they're sexy. I understand that it is definitely a minority view in paleontologists, but- If it's true, that's really fucking cool. right? And when you listen to him, he doesn't sound crazy. And you can look at some of the research and stuff that they've done online. We don't sound crazy, but we believe in the aquatic ape theory. So yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think I think our thing is we're we're entertaining this stuff, right? Because the thing that's unfortunate is that he is just like demonized by the paleontology community, right? Really, or like the Egyptology community. See, that's the kind of stuff that sucks. Where yeah. it's like even with like the uh, like any sort of like fringe theory, right? Like examine it dispassionately, like using science, not right. using like ostracizing someone for well, and most chasing a theory. Stuff that we believe now kind of started out as yeah. a fringe theory at one point. And everybody knows that, right? Which is why like, I don't know. It's like you got to respect the fringe theories and some like you almost got to take them like make sure to disprove them very clearly. Mm hmm. And it's, like, dangerous to not do that, right? It's, like, almost irresponsible. Yeah. If you're, if you're trying to disprove one of these theories, it's, like, irresponsible to be, like... It's lazy. Yeah, it's lazy to be able to just say, like, oh, aquatic apes, that's outlandish. Like, obviously, that's not true. Right, without, like, actually chasing it down and do... It's, like, strongmanning versus straw manning. Yeah. The argument. It's, like, you got to take all the best things that this theory is talking about and then show why those are false. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, a debating tactic. Right. Well, not a debating tactic. It's, like, what debating is. Yeah, it's how to properly debate someone. Yeah. That sucks that he's ostracized for that. Well, and that like, and they like they did some sort of because I guess you can do tests where you like blast sound waves into the ground and then you can get like images of what's under there. Mm, oh, like sonars. Yeah, there. it's like sonar. I guess they found like a chamber under part of the Sphinx. Oh, shit. And uh, the like Egyptologist people like won't let anyone excavate it. Right. <sighs> Because it's like it's, it's this thing where it could have a lot of like really good evidence or answers and interesting evidence and stuff, but they like won't let them do it for weird reasons. So huh. I don't know. I mean, for like almost political reasons. Yeah, it's it's almost political. It's like they don't want to throw away the notion of um, and to be fair, he's not saying that like. The Egyptians didn't build this stuff, or that, like aliens built it or anything. It's like, hey, maybe there were people here before the Egyptians. Right, right? like that's not that crazy an no, idea. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so
0: I don't know. I just it, it sucks when you hear about those kinds of stories right it's kind of it's like you see this in business all the time you see it in medicine all the time too oh yeah medicine is a perfect example yeah it becomes very political it's like hand washing yep you know that was a huge thing right where uh there's a, that's actually where the term comes from the semmelwise reflex right mm, yeah because it was the the guy semmelwise was like yo we should all wash our hands and they were like nah fuck that we're gonna keep you know going from cutting up corpses to delivering babies everything's fine and then eventually they realized like all right we should probably wash your hands. I thought it was more even bottom up than that, that it was like the hospitals that were implementing this just were seeing way less like infections and stuff. I think that is eventually what happened. But I I think he was one of the first people to sound the alarm about it. Oh, I think he was like the... Yeah. yeah, Oh, definitely. Was he the one who kind of uh, in his lifetime didn't actually see it become... Yeah. He got put in a sane asylum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's actually in the book that we have on our on our list oh is it and i one? think it's in i wouldn't be surprised yeah well, i think i remember if it was not in that one it was in another one about it gets talked about a lot it's like a pretty famous example of just old ideas old entrenched ideas being really terrible or even like all the like low-fat stuff yeah like for a while if you were anti that you would probably be like, I couldn't imagine someone going to a conference. Yeah. If you, if you went to see your doctor and you came back with a cholesterol of, you know, 200 and they said, oh, that's totally fine. Like, don't worry about it. They'd be like, whoa, what? Or yeah. that's not what you're supposed to say. Right. And now, I mean, especially now there's all this research coming out that basically shows that high cholesterol is helpful for longevity. Yeah. Which is amazing. Like one of the strongest correlations with increased all-cause mortality is low cholesterol, right? So, Well, because it's tied to a lot of uh, neurological disorders. Yeah, neurodegenerative disorders, exactly. And it's also because it's such a precursor, it's a precursor uh, to a lot of essential nutrients as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially for men. Yeah. It's like you use cholesterol to build testosterone and your brain runs 25% on cholesterol. I would always argue about this with people ever since I like, like the first time I came across this, I was like, your body wouldn't produce something on its own because cholesterol is like, you could have zero dietary cholesterol and you would still have cholesterol in your blood. Yeah. So it would be very odd for your body to produce a substance automatically that is just naturally harmful. It yeah, it doesn't make sense. does not make sense. Like, why right. would your body do that? And also, it's like that, uh, and this is actually a good example of anthropomorphizing something in science, too, is this idea that if you eat something, it becomes something in your body. Right. Right, like eating cholesterol has no effect on your cholesterol level. Yeah. <laughs> eating fat doesn't make you fat. Right. Right. It's just kind of like eating a chicken doesn't help you grow wings. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think, dude, I think Taleb or someone brought this up was like, uh, like eating a cow does not make you bovine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I think also
0: the, the, the name fat is just an unfortunate semantics problem. Yeah. They just fucked that up. I don't know. Whoever's behind, whoever's behind the it's, marketing. I mean, to be fair, they are the same thing. I, I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can put fat on your body and it's the same like part of your body that is the fat that you would eat on a steak. Right. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that. Eating it from a cow, like, makes you develop it. Right. Right. Like, really think about it for a second. By that logic, we should all just be eating brain. Yeah, exactly. Then we get smarter. We'll grow brain. (laughs) Actually, we should be eating a lot of... Of human brains. Smart people's brains. Oh, I was... I was going to make a bad joke about like eating bull penis. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, there you go. That's uh, a secret to having yeah. a huge penis. <laughs> yeah. You just eat lots of penis. <laughs> and rhino horns because they look like penises. Yo, you know what? I bet you could <laughs> convince people of that. Like if you made a really legit looking webpage. <laughs> bull penis powder. Bull penis powder. Yeah, exactly. Justin, get on it. That's your <laughs> next, next startup idea. <laughs> startup idea. <laughs> Somebody would pay for it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Actually, you know, if you they could be our new sponsors. If you <laughs> could be our if you <laughs> new. join our Patreon at twenty five dollars a month or more, you get a free can of bull penis powder each when month. It come, when, while supplies last. While supplies <laughs> last. <Yeah. laughs> the hard thing is chasing down the bulls. Yeah. <laughs> they, they really don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> This is probably our best tangent. Oh yeah, A plus tangent. Uh, but actually, this all relates to this next section, which amazingly it relates to the next section, which is all about how to harvest bull penis. Uh, no, no. He also included this because he just thought it was cool, like just like the multiverse. Yeah, right? it was just kind of like a little recipe. Yeah, yeah great diagrams. Yes. Uh, no, it is about bad philosophy. So. What he defines as bad philosophy is philosophy that's not merely false, but actively prevents the growth of other knowledge, right? So it's ideas that not only, you know, aren't true, but that try to keep you from finding true ideas. Yeah. Right. So uh, religion is a great example of this because the authority. Yeah. Well, there's these lines in the Bible that are basically like, you know, I am your God, you know, listen to me and ignore all others who would. Because I said so. Yeah. It's basically because I said so. Right. That's the perfect example of bad philosophy. I always think about it from top down to bottom up economics, too. Yeah. Where it's like top down is like we we know what's right. And this is what you're supposed to be doing. Whereas bottom up is basically like a philosophy that allows for the emergence of, Anything. Right. It's, it's kind of like experiment and see what happens yeah. and then keep the ideas that work, toss out the ones that don't, and you'll figure it out. Yep. But top-down prevents the growth of other exactly, right? And that's yeah. the that's the dangerous yeah. thing. That's the big problem. Yeah. And that's... I mean, you, when you look for it, you start to see it kind of everywhere, right? Uh This is usually it's like a bad company culture thing, right? When they had kind of have the oh, well, this is how we do things here mentality, right? And if you can't challenge it, then it's bad philosophy, right? Right? If people especially I mean, we talked about this an elephant in the brain. But if you get uncomfortable with someone questioning an idea of yours, that's probably a sign that it's a type of bad philosophy for you too, or right? it's not really a well thought out reasoned idea. We've also thought about the Was it you who brought up the uh, crony beliefs? Yeah, well, that's why Kevin Simler. So, Elephant in the Brain, yeah. So, one of the authors of Elephant in the Brain. Yeah, yeah. So, similar idea, right? It's like crony beliefs are usually a form of bad philosophy, right? If you just believe something because it's socially beneficial to believe it, you will feel personally attacked when someone challenges it. It's a good way of reflecting on your own beliefs, too. Because when you're talking to someone or listening to something, and if you start to feel overly triggered... It's a good indication that it might be a crony belief that you should look at. Yeah. I always have a hard time with it, too, though, because... We all do. I mean, that's why it's... Well, no, no, no. I mean, because sometimes I get emotional in response to things just because I'm like so annoyed at the person for believing it. Ah, yeah. So you got to disentangle that. Yeah. So like, as an example, I was talking to someone over the weekend who read the book on the China study and then immediately mm-hmm. just like stopped eating meat. Right. Oh, just, and it's man. like been a vegetarian for three months. It's like a guy who does like competitive races and stuff. And it's like, there's so many problems with the China study. And it is not that hard to like go online and find very compelling refutations yeah. to it. Right. And then it was just like a struggle for me to like not be a total dick to this person <laughs> I had just met. Be like, your life is a lie. Right. Uh, but then I was like, all right, so am I doing this because I have like a crony belief around vegetarianism or am I doing it because I'm just like annoyed that this person fell for this thing. Yeah. Annoyed that he felt like it's hard to separate those. Yeah. Right. And obviously everyone thinks they are annoyed for good reasons. Right. Right. No (laughs) one thinks that they're annoyed for the crony belief reason. (laughs) Right. Right. So if you, if somebody is, you know, like, oh, we should, uh, I mean, to keep it on the reverse, like everyone should be vegan. Right. And they meet someone who eats meat and they get like angry about it to them. They're getting angry because like, how can this person think eating meat is healthy? Right. Right. But, you know to us on the outside it's like well they're getting angry because they have this like crony belief right or their values are being attacked and they're reacting emotionally that's actually a really good point yeah and you see that with all kinds of things yeah i mean i was even going to say people who strongly dislike hunting but mm-hmm. then eat meat eat meat yeah and then if you confront somebody with that they're like but wait it's different because and it's like they'll spout out all kinds of things or if they see a picture of a hunter they're like oh fucking hunters mm-hmm. right and it's like well how do you, where do you think your meat comes from yeah exactly do you eat meat okay <laughs> yeah, like, well which animal do you think is a better life the one yeah. running around in nature like having sex playing being happy and then just dies one day or the like cow that's locked in a tiny little cage for its entire life separated from its young uh like hooked up to you know a milking machine 24 7 right like walking around in its own shit until it you know goes to slaughterhouse one day right who do you think is being more humane yeah. to the food they eat, right? Well, I also saw this with, uh, in regards to, I want to say palm sugar, because palm sugar is like increasingly being used over like cane sugar and stuff oh, like that. Okay. It's like kind of like how coconut sugar and coconut oil is being used more. Yeah. Um, there's like something about it that's better. I forget why. But anyway, apparently the harvesting of that is, uh kills a lot of like monkeys because oh. um, it's just like a mat. It's like a, like a some type of machine that just cuts down palm trees and then monkeys get caught in it and all this stuff so um i saw somebody was talking about that like oh you shouldn't eat palm sugar because it does which like i understand that's not like a good thing that it's killing all these monkeys yeah but at the same time like this person was basically talking about how like you know if you get your food in an inhumane way but then they were like i know that person also eats like at restaurants and like fast mm-hmm. food and i'm like we like it's not necessarily more like who's living a better life? Going back to your question. Yeah. Like, these are like wild monkeys versus like the factory farmed animals. It's like, it's very easy to get emotionally worked up about these things, which is it is. because a lot of these are, none of these things are good, mm-hmm. but it's, it's like selectively getting emotional about the problem. It's yeah. Like you're blind to one whole area and we all do this. I'm sure I'm, I'm very blind to some other areas in my life too, but yeah, you get like, you're like blind to this part that you're used to and then you see this other thing that's like, bad but it's like not nearly as bad as the thing that you're blind to and you get very emotionally worked up well it's the same thing with uh vegetables actually right because the vegetable harvesting process kills tons of small animals Mm. and like baby deer and mice and yep all of that they just get like caught in the grinder get chopped up basically with the vegetables yeah so it's like all right if you're going to be a vegetarian because you think that killing animals for food is bad then you also have to like shop at a local farmer's market or something you can't eat mass-produced vegetables or like grow your own food yeah, or grow your own food right because you're still killing animals for your food you're just not eating them right and so it's it's weird because there's all these I honestly i was thinking about this earlier today i think it'd be a good article uh and the term i came up with was stupid activism okay right where it's <laughs> like being really like militant about something uh that you're either like half wrong about like in this case right or just totally wrong about Mm. right uh i think the best example for the second one is like uh plastic bags okay right because plastic bags are by far the best thing for (laughs) like using at grocery stores right and the energy and the resources required to make paper bags uh is significantly more and the like you know, the woven or whatever fancy bags that they try to sell you at Whole Foods, right? Uh, Those are way worse, right? They use so much more energy and resources, right? Well, it's again, it's only looking at first order versus all the second order and third order. Exactly. Yeah. So the best thing you can do for the environment is use plastic bags. Or uh, I was checking out once at Uh, I go to Dos Toros. Have you been there? Yes. It's like like Chipotle, but better. Yeah, it's a good place. And they were going to give me like the small bag for my bowl. And I was like, oh, can I have one of the big bags? And then the guy was like, uh, he was like, yeah. And then he made some joke. He was like, oh, but you know, like these paper bags, like they have to cut down trees for them. Right. And I'm like, yeah, trees, they grow to make the paper. Right. Like it's not that they're like lumberjacks in the Amazon, like chopping down trees (laughs) to make paper bags. That'd be so inefficient. Right. (laughs) So there's like, little things like that where, <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, by okay, this is okay. Now we're we're gonna piss somebody off by me saying this. Probably no, nope, do it. Okay, but I think that like also they're so they're growing that tree in order to do the paper bag, right? So by increasing the demand for those paper bags that you just asked for, yeah, you're increasing the likelihood that they're gonna plant more trees. Exactly, because they're gonna make more money off of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you're not just. Use, you're not just uh, using a tree that one has already been cut down. So the, the bag is there. Yeah. But you are creating a positive reinforcement loop or contributing to the positive reinforcement loop to grow more trees, grow more trees. You're helping the environment. You are. <laughs> so that, that's the thing. It's like activism that actually makes the thing worse that yeah. it's trying to help. Uh, foreign orphanages are another good example of this. Mm. So like orphanages in Africa and stuff that people go to for, you know, quote unquote service trips. It's like, hey, look at me. I'm a white kid. <laughs> oh, yes. Because they basically turn into like a whole industry around. Yeah, they've like these poor countries have created industries around orphanages. In the best cases, they'll like borrow people's kids. In the worst cases, they'll kidnap. Yeah, they literally borrow kids or kidnap them, put them in these orphanages so that these like rich white kids who are trying to do service for high school to like get into Harvard, uh, go help out. (laughs) And so by trying to help poor kids in other countries you're actually making it worse for mm. them well tom's had that whole thing with like the three shoes right yeah they just like destroyed the shoe economy which is like by like air dropping these shoes in right exactly it's like, well it, it's it goes back to like messing with complex systems yeah right it's like there, it's a complex system changing one variable you're gonna fuck up the whole thing yep by doing that and if you want a good episode on this you should listen to leverage points yes. uh it's the title is bring the crowbar place to intervene in a system i think it's like 33 or so yeah it's a good episode. that's a great episode i think it's been we haven't talked about it as much but yeah, yeah so it's a really good episode but it comes up a lot it's yeah like complex system fuckery is generally bad yeah but yeah so that's like that's bad philosophy I, well he brought up postmodernism in this. yeah episode. he did which i thought was great He basically says that postmodernism is a narrative that resists rational criticism or improvement because it rejects all criticisms as mere narrative. Right. So, and then I like that he makes fun of it because he says, creating successful postmodernist theory is purely a matter of meeting the criteria of the postmodernist community, which have evolved to be complex, exclusive, and authority based. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. It's exactly what it was trying to like rail against in the beginning. So it's just (laughs) fallen into its own trap. Which I think why we reel on it so much, yeah, on this show, right? It's like It's silly. It's a silly theory. There there are parts of it that are good. No, there are. Which we, which you can go listen to Foucault. When we read Foucault, there were some good things. Yeah, Yeah. you can go listen to Discipline and Punish. Yep, it's not a BDSM episode. It's about (laughs) postmodernism. Although, I mean, we should tell people it is. Although, it was kind kind of painful to to read. (laughs) That was what my sister said. We were drunk. Yeah, (laughs) we were drunk. (laughs) There was a little bit of light spanking involved. That was what my sister said when I told her it was our most popular episode. She's like, people probably thought it was like fifty shades of gray. <laughs> yeah. It's not our most popular though, right? It was at the time. Yeah, right? it was our most popular, like week one, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, people were probably thinking it was about something else, probably. But well, it was still good. Yeah. But what I like that he goes on to talk about here is the problems in different kinds of science. Mm. Right. And Oh, I love this section. Yeah, it yeah. explains a lot of the problems we have talked about on here before with social science and economics and a lot of these soft sciences is that, uh, and I'm going to read a couple things here out of order, where he's talking about like physics, right? And he says, in the hard sciences, which usually do good science, false results due to all sorts of errors are nevertheless common, but they're corrected when their explanations are criticized and tested. But that can't happen in explanationless science. Because he gives the example of happiness and heritability, where he says that, you know, you could do this study where you look at how happy people are, and then you track it across their genetics and their family relationships. And then you just like combine all this data. And then you say like, Oh, it looks like happiness is 50% heritable. And then a newspaper publishes it and says like, Oh, happiness is 50% determined by your genes. But there's no explanation in there, right? There's just random information being kind of like combined together. There's also so many variables which are like undefined like yeah what the fuck is happiness what is heritable what is happiness right right <laughs> is it self-reported is it like, exactly yeah. yeah it's like there's all this yeah there's all sorts of shit that's tied to that and so he calls that explanationless science there is no explanation for why that is right whereas in you know physics and stuff we are actually able to explain why things happen right entropy has a strong basis in sort of like the physics of the universe right right? like things naturally decompose and like descend into chaos yeah and we can kind of explain that but we can't really explain most of this like social science correlational study data so it's not even real knowledge it's basically what he says well this is part of why i i actually count most of what we count as specifically in the medical field i count a lot of it as uh like almost halfway to a social science Mm. it's not physics yeah, what we do right now is not physics. No, in biology, it's like there's a, it's empiricism in most in most cases. Yeah, we know certain things that work, certain things that don't. But then, in terms of if you want to get down to an exact cause, like saying like what causes can't you know a specific type of cancer, it's like impossible at the moment to really nail that down. What's the thing too? It's, it's like, like it could be this, it could be that. We've not proved that smoking causes cancer, right? Well, we were talking about that in one of the um what was the cancer one that not cancer the smoking oh yeah merchants of doubt merchants of doubt yes (laughs) another good episode yeah good episode 36 maybe something like that yeah sometime around the Foucault time as well so anyway yeah it's like um there's so many like unknown variables when it comes to it whereas there's no uh, it's not like physics where it's so clear cut or even chemistry is much more clear cut than biology is I would say physics is probably the most clear cut well math yeah, math because it's purely an abstract. Math, yeah. and then physics, and then, then physics, then, then chemistry. Maybe chemistry, bio. Actually, there's an XKCD comic about this. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, where it's it's like a continuum of mm-hmm. science to social science to yeah to pseudoscience, <laughs> basically. <laughs> where it's like you know it's yeah it's something like math, physics, chemistry, biology, psychology, you know economics maybe it's something like that right just getting less and less precise in their ability to actually create meaningful knowledge right well and i would say in terms of advice on how to live the further away you get from math the more likely that following like lindy compatible rules makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense yeah right because it's like then you're effectively using the evolutionary argument so like these are the rules that have survived whereas like i wouldn't so i wouldn't trust my grandmother's explanation for what is a star right right like, you know or maybe my grandmother maybe not like my great 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 grandparents probably did not know what a star was yeah that's like you know or what what causes like radiation or something right like things like that i don't would not trust like the historical knowledge yeah <laughs> for, but things like should you eat eggs Right. Like that I think makes more sense to follow like not the latest study that came out that could have been funded by yeah some interest group. So I guess like tossing out old knowledge requires an explanation. Yes. Or like a cause and effect relationship. Cause and effect. Something for why that should be so. Right. Like if tomorrow somebody came back and was like fat is well, which they did come back and say that in what the seventies, right? And said that fat is unhealthy. Yeah. Like that's not consistent with most of human history. Yeah, you need a why. So you need a really good why for why that's true. Yeah, I agree with that. It's yeah. a good way of thinking about it. It's same with psychology, right? Yeah. It's like, like using stoicism or like, you know, philosophies that have, like self-philosophies that have survived for a long time mm-hmm. and have been, you know, used by a lot of different people are probably better than the latest, like, lifehack.com article. Yeah. That's going to be like, this is how you be happy. We can kind of apply that to some of the explanations of things like depression, yeah. right? So, the chemical imbalance theory, right. right? Which is fairly well, I think, debunked at this point, but... I'm not familiar enough with it, so I actually don't know a whole lot about what the theories are and... I mean that's just the one that I think of the most because that one to me seems like very perfect example of a narrative created by a drug company mm. right because yeah. there was there's really no experimental evidence there's a lot of replication problem in drug uh, trials as well that, yeah but but I just mean the idea that you have a chemical imbalance in your brain lends itself to being having a drug be the solution right right but also if that were the case then it would probably have to be a genetically or biologically derived problem and then we would not see like a massive increase in in recent history right unless there was something else that was in the environment that we were not exposed to historically exactly but then it wouldn't be a chemical imbalance thing it would be an environmental issue right right exactly i would argue the best example is adhd yeah (laughs) yeah that's like so obviously an environmental thing (laughs) it's like so obviously not a genetic thing right But yet they've convinced millions of parents that there's something wrong with their kids and are making like quite literally billions of dollars on a made up disease. Yeah. And to be fair, there's maybe like 1% of people who have a legitimate issue and need to be on the drugs. But I'd say the other 99%, it is like an environmental diet something thing. And the parents just don't want to do the hard work of fixing it if it's easier to just put their kid on a drug. It's also not even just the parents. It's like the school systems haven't figured out that like... I mean, we talked about this on some episode, Mm -hmm. I know, but for the people who haven't heard that episode, like putting a seven-year-old child in a desk for seven hours a day is kind of torture. Yeah. It's kind of a form of torture. Well, it's like we talked about on Elephant in the Brain. It's a method of domestication. Right. It's like it is a way to train children to be good, obedient, like workers for the workforce. Right. Yeah. Because it's not in our nature. Right. So uh, and then the drugs just help with that. Right. Right. Like it's—I mean—that's literally who you are on ADHD. Is what right? is it? The whole the, the uh, analogy—the the map versus the terrain. Oh yeah, exactly. You're yeah. changing the terrain to fit yeah. the map. Yep. Right. We're changing the kids to fit the classrooms <laughs> instead of changing <laughs> exactly. the classrooms to fit the kids. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Like at any point in history, if you know all these kids were having these major issues with classrooms and stuff, you'd probably say like, all right, we're doing something wrong with school. Right. But the difference today is that now we say, well, there's something wrong with us. And now we're going to change you to fit this. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, for adults, too. Right. It's like, oh, you're depressed in your life. It's not the solution is to change your life. It's to take a drug. Right. Right. Or you're you can't sleep. The solution isn't to change your health practices so that you sleep better it's to take a drug right right like that's just sort of become the go-to yeah uh which is probably not a very good sustainable solution not so robust yeah well especially now with things like finding out that statins kill you right <laughs> well I was just to say talking about complex systems talking yeah. about the human body oh yeah like so you put a drug in okay first order effect you might be able to help that person sleep but you don't know what the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth order effects are right on your body Same thing with like cutting out, like, let's say you cut out fat. Yeah. Right. That might do, okay, it might have a first order effect that you can measure, but there's probably tons of second and third and fourth and fifth order effects that are only going to show up later. Yeah. Even if for no other reason than the need to replace it with other calories, which will almost certainly mean eating way more carbohydrates. More sugar. Yep. Yeah. So, bad philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We got to keep going. This is a good book. is ah, oh, this is a wonderful <laughs> book. There's so many things we could go off of in here. Well, and that's the other thing. It is a philosophy book. More than anything, it's a philosophy book. Yeah. I think we can maybe skip the politics one. Yeah. I, I One, I found it a little confusing. And two, it didn't feel quite as relevant. Yeah, it also seemed more like a separate essay. Yeah, it did seem separate. It's kind of like the multiverse thing. Yeah. It's like kind of like tossed in there because it's kind of related, but also kind of not. He basically says that the way we vote right now is better than if we did like a runoff system mm. for reasons that are still a little opaque to me. It was something of like, there's not really a perfect way of doing it. I know he started with that being like the, he was setting the stage and then he was showed this few different options and then he was like, this is the better. This is like the more fair way. Yeah, it sounded like he was saying the way we do it now is the most correctable. Yes. Because if a political party fails to do well, they'll be almost entirely replaced in the next cycle. And so there's good skin in the game to do a good job. Yeah, it was actually a skin in the game-esque chapter. Yeah, kind of argument, yeah. I like the next chapter, though, about beauty. Yeah, I love this section. It's basically like, you know, we think of beauty and art and aesthetics as subjective. But then he is making the argument here that, no, there is objective universal beauty to be discovered uh, because for no other reason than that we find flowers beautiful. Right. And there's no reason a flower would have evolved to be attractive to humans. Mm -hmm. They evolved to be attractive to insects. But the fact that we also find them beautiful cross-culturally means that there must be something about them and some other things that just meet some sort of universal beautiful standard. Well, it's like music is probably the best example of this, yeah. right? Like the mathematical nature of music. Right. Like there's just something. Well. Oh, God. Yeah, I'll, cu- I'll cut you off there because I think that's what he challenges too is that we can agree that these things are universal, like the beauty and appreciation of music, but our explanations for them still fail. Yeah. Because right, you you started to say the mathematical, right? And like, I, like we don't know that that's That's it. a judgment, yeah. But there is something. Yeah. Because right? he calls it out with the flowers too. Like they're not, it's not symmetry, right? It's not a color thing. Because there's a lot of colorful stuff we don't find beautiful. And it's not like a uh, symmetry, right? Because lots of flowers are asymmetrical, right? So we don't really know what the reason is, but we know that we find them beautiful. Do you think there's something to... The idea of so forget music for a second, just mm-hmm. sticking to flowers because it's a much more digestible example. Yeah, um, there's something to the, the idea that we share common ancestors with insects at some level. Of course, it's way back in evolutionary history, but if it's you know, if a flower has evolved to be attractive to insects, if there's some remnant of some level of base code that also, would view flowers as as beautiful because, like, I wonder, do yeah, or I guess that no, let's see. There's a way to there's a way to debunk that. Probably, are other creatures also attracted to flowers? Because I would view like I would actually say humans are attracted to flowers. Like, if you saw flowers from like on a field, yeah, like when you look at a field and then you see flowers on the field, they you're stand like, out. They stand out exactly. So like your eyes go to that, yeah, right. So in some way, we are actually attracted to them. Are monkeys the same? I don't know. It's a good question. I know they're attracted to fruits yeah right like we are as well maybe that's why we're attracted to flowers it signals fruit maybe the colors yeah Yeah. we're uh there was definitely a book we talked about that where we're like our brains are mixing up signals Mm. different things yeah like we're confusing things well beauty that happens all the time right for like makeup like you're you're confusing like plump lips with uh for like someone being fertile yeah we talked about that here the difference between beautiful and hot yeah yeah, that was on one of the episodes. That might have been elephant in the brain, actually. Yeah, it was one of them. It was one of them. We've had so many episodes. No, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know. We're just <laughs> too many of them. <laughs> we should just uh, we should just stop. Just cut it off at fifty. <laughs> That's all. We read all the books. <laughs> yeah, all We're the done. Books. There's nothing. <laughs> just start archiving and charging for them, like uh, <laughs> like uh, Dan Dan Carlin. Yeah. Nah. We leave up the last year of episodes or something, and then- yeah. we'll do that in year three. You have to get them from the Patreon. Yeah. There we go. We're just brainstorming here, coming up with uh we're coming up with ideas and then we'll see which ones uh which ones stick. Yeah. Monetization ideas. But uh, basically he concludes by saying that the fact that flowers reliably seem beautiful to humans when their designs evolved for an apparently unrelated purpose is evidence that beauty is objective. Those convergent criteria of beauty solve the problem of creating hard-to-forge signals where prior shared knowledge is insufficient to provide them. So there's some there's just like something. Right. Right, which I think he um, brings up a lot in the book that there can be these underlying fundamental just like aspects of reality that we don't understand yet right. right but that we can eventually develop an explanation for right so flowers we know they're beautiful and there is some universal truth to beauty but what he's also saying there is that there is that like universal beauty but then there's also the beauty we can create and just as our knowledge can grow infinitely beauty too it seems might have this infinite growth mm. right in its ability to continue to, Expand and build upon itself while also drawing on these universal principles. See, and the, well, the reason I brought up the insect and human having the like having a similar genetic remnant mm-hmm. uh, was the lobster stuff that Peterson talks about. Oh, yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, okay, if that's similar, because that is similar, that, like yep. what he talks about for lobsters, it's like, okay, that is exactly true for humans. It's like a lot of the same physiology. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It just like makes you. Th- but anyway, it's uh, it, it like ma- he make more- makes you think. What's that? You think. <laughs> I, I was trying to cut myself off there. But I was like, I really no. We have to say th- it at least <laughs> once per <for> episode. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's. I think what he's saying is like we don't yet know the answer to these to yeah. these things. But there's prop there's something that's there that's underlying it. And it's a type of knowledge that we just haven't acquired yet. Yeah. But it is. A, it's not this mysterious. It is mysterious to us, but it's not like a supernatural force. Right. It is discoverable. It's discoverable. Yeah. Which is cool. It's a cool chapter. Yeah, it was a cool chapter. I think the next chapter is my favorite. Mm, evolution of culture. Yeah, which we've we've talked about some already about memes and kind of like how memes spread through culture. Uh, Which has come up in a lot of other books. We got to do Selfish Gene at some point. Yeah. So that's really where this idea, I think, comes from in this phrasing that, you know, just as our biology spreads through genes and manipulation of genes, our ideas spread through memes, which are basically like packaged ideas that, you know, we can transmit to each other and that evolve and grow and change as they're spread around. And so the memes are like our cultural version of genes. Right. And they go through a similar process. So what he's kind of exploring here is that when memes change, uh, what are the conditions where they change for the better and how do they change? And what he introduces, uh, which I love, are rational and irrational or anti-rational memes. I like that term too. So a rational meme is an idea that relies on the recipient's critical faculties to cause itself to be replicated, right? So you replicate it and share it because it is true or makes sense or is useful to you. But an anti-rational meme is an idea that relies on disabling the recipient's critical faculties to cause itself to be replicated. This is like flood geology, right? right? right. You know, you're exactly. you're proving your adherence to the faith by spreading this idea, and that is disabling your critical faculties. You're not spreading it because it's true or useful. You're right. spreading it to prove that you're a member of the tribe, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's almost like um. Well, the simplest explanation that I mean, the simplest example for this is like. If, for whatever reason, it was like some tribe's belief that you should jump off a cliff like the day you turn 30. Yeah. And then the person who didn't do that, you know, would be like, okay, I I didn't jump off a cliff and I'm fine. But like other people would be like, wait, why the fuck would I jump off a cliff? (laughs) Maybe I'll not do that too. So that idea would spread very quickly because it's just useful. Yeah. Like people just would rather not be dead. Right. (laughs) Right? And to (laughs) prevent that spreading, you need an anti-rational meme to block it which could be like oh the god is going to punish like your children or something if you don't jump off a cliff at 30 yeah exactly yeah that's just like a very super simple example but that it's an easy way to picture that concept yeah that you need then you need some other form of idea to prevent somebody from using the rational explanation yeah and memes, uh, as deutsch is saying uh it sounds like survive and thrive on their ability to get you to replicate them. Right. It's like genes. Yeah, it's like genes. Yeah. Right? A good meme that will spread successfully is one that, you know, is useful and valuable in some way so that, you know, it gets shared right. and told. Whereas, you know, the ones that are not particularly useful or pragmatic, right, don't spread nearly as well. And although the one, uh, I guess, p- slight problem with that is is that humans are super lazy mm. and sometimes what's useful and rational is not easy. Yeah. Do right. So it's like way easier to just eat like burgers and ice cream and brownies. It feels way better. And if some doctor, like, can you imagine if there's a study that was like, pizza can save your life, right? Or pizza prevents cancer, and that's like the headline. Do you know how many times that article is going to be shared? Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> anytime there's a study that's like alcohol increases your lifespan. That shit gets shared so much. Oh yeah, because people want the justification. Because it justifies people' be, people's behavior, right? Yeah. So I don't know how useful that is, though, right? <laughs> like, I guess like that's what I'm saying is like there's some weird like oh yeah, that's what you mean. There's some weird like edge cases where like mostly it's it's not that. So here's the thing though, that information is useful because it's enabling. That's true, right? It lets you do what you want to do. Yeah. That is not necessarily an anti-rational meme, even though it's wrong. I see. Right? Yeah. Because I I think that's the distinction here, is that something can be rational and wrong. Yeah, that's a good point. And it could also be anti-rational and true. Ah, yes, you're correct about that. Yeah. What would be a good example of an anti-rational true meme? I was going to say like some of the some okay this is again might be controversial Mm -hmm. some of like the uh like some of the traditional gender rule stuff oh yeah that's a good example right that's a good example where it's not necessarily like okay objectively you could say like why can't a man do any job a woman can do why can't a woman do any job a man can do and like objectively you're probably correct yeah but like will you be happy doing that there's like all these other questions that come in into that and uh biology obviously has a say as well but um it feels anti-rational to say that like you know, there are just certain societal roles that women can do that men can't do. And there's certain societal roles that like men are better at doing than women. That feels anti-rational. But maybe it's not on another level because objectively, then biology would tell you- Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, where do you draw the line of like what's- I'm trying to think what would be a good one. Because if it were an anti-rational meme, it would mean that it would have to be biology would be- False. We'll show you the opposite, too. Well, I'm I'm trying to think, like, more conceptually, right? So an anti-rational meme would have to be one that makes you not think about the subject anymore. Ah, yes. It just shuts it down. Yeah. Just be like, nope, this is true, right? And so is there any case where there are true things that we do that – I guess there are silly ones, like, you should drink water. Mm -hmm. Right, Like, I'm not going to sit around and analyze whether or not I should drink water each day. Like, I don't need a rational meme for water consumption. Right, Right? Like, an anti-rational one that shuts down my reasoning around water consumption is actually... Good for you. Yeah. An idea that relies on disabling the recipient's critical faculties to cause itself to be replicated. Okay, so it's about how it replicates by disabling critical faculties. Maybe it's just, like, easy-to-remember rules, like drink eight glasses of water a day or whatever oh yeah it's like just easy to remember yeah and it's useful so in that case actually yeah in that case the pizza pizza cure in cancer would be anti-rational right because you need to not think about it to spread it yeah right well because i was thinking for water right like to say like eight glasses of water or whatever x number of ounces of water per day yeah is not really a rational number to give because it depends on your physical activity it right depends, like what you were doing like i don't know just like that number is just a helpful kind of random heuristic yeah what the humidity is outside there's like all these like to get the actual number would require a lot of taking into account a lot of other variables yeah but for just to remember and spread the idea it's a very catchy like easy thing to say to especially to a kid like oh you should be drinking eight glasses of water a day yeah that's a good point so it is it is useful while being anti-rational. It's easy to spread. Yeah. And it's not entirely false. It'd be much harder if I was like, you need to take the humidity that it shows on the weather app of your phone. Yeah. Calculate your weight. Yeah, Multiply that by like the number of hours of physical activity you did that day add your pulse how often did you pee to, yeah. yeah exactly how much salt did you eat how today much salt did you eat? yeah yeah you would just be like fuck this i'm not yeah fuck this. this i'm drinking eight glasses." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i mean i think what he's generally getting at though is that we mostly want society to transition towards rational memes away from anti-rational yeah. memes but we have a lot of anti-rational memes that we still use and hold on to right like The type of clothing we wear and the way we act around people Mm. and uh, the way we decorate our homes, right? He, He says here, consider how you would be judged by other people if you went shopping in pajamas or painted your house with blue and brown stripes. That gives a hint of the narrowness and conventions that govern even these objectively trivial and inconsequential choices about style and the steepness of the social costs of violating them. Is the same thing true of the more momentous patterns in our lives, such as careers, relationships, education, morality, political outlook, and national identity? Consider what we should expect to happen when a static society is gradually switching from anti rational to rational memes. I think that actually captures a lot of, uh, and I'm not using political terms here, I'm using like conceptual terms liberal or conservative conflict. Yeah. yeah. Is that conservatism is. Technically, kind of anti-rational right It's trying to keep things static and the same. yeah whereas liberalism is generally at least pro rational. it's not necessarily rational, but it is pro like using your reasoning faculties to decide what makes the most sense instead of just saying like, no, this is the way it is right. Right. So I feel like like, gay marriage is a good example of this. Right. So, you know, old curmudgeonly, mostly white people are like, no, gays can't get married. But I wouldn't say it's mostly white people, though, because if you look around the world, that's a good point. Go to the Middle East and try to promote. Gay marriage. I meant. America. I meant in the U.S. I know. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just trying to like throw a. No, but you're true. Like, try being gay in Africa <laughs> or Saudi Arabia. That's not going to go very well. Yeah, or Saudi Arabia. Go enjoy that argument. There. A lot of Asia too. I think. Yeah, I would say like most of Asian society. Basically, like everywhere except maybe Europe. Yeah, yeah. South America. Yeah, it's eh, it's more okay there, depending on where you are. I was gonna ask. Like, I don't. I'm not familiar with South America's view. Like Argentina, or... it's super fine. Okay, but I know there are some South American cultures where it's less okay. Mm. But probably still not like the level of Asia and Africa. Yeah, imagine, or, I mean, I think Africa is particularly bad. in yeah. Saudi Arabia, or like Middle East. Yeah, right. Any any Arab or not Arab Muslim, but yeah, um, it's going to be bad news. But anyway, in the U.S., right, it's like all these all these old white dudes be yeah. like, oh, gays can't get married, and then our generation is like, we don't care. Who cares, yeah, like yeah. I mean, honestly, that was kind of how I thought about it. More was not like a like yeah, like they need rights, right? <laughs> right. It's just like a who cares? Like obviously, yeah. yeah it's like, like it doesn't affect me. Yeah, it doesn't affect <laughs> yeah, me, right? And that was sort of the more rational meme i think taking over the anti-rational like keep things the same right yeah it's not saying you have to go get into a gay relationship yeah it's not like what the argument is the argument is like should these people who want to do this in a way that doesn't affect you right be allowed to go do it and honestly that is actually the better rational meme Hmm. because the idea that i mean there, there would be other ideas that could be anti-rational while also being pro-gay marriage Mm, right like uh i don't know what would be a good example i mean i've seen certain celebrities uh i'm trying to remember who it was there's one particularly egregious one or especially when this whole thing was going on i think it's when the supreme court case was going on okay she said something like she's like i hope my son is gay or something right and it's like yeah you can like i can see why you're saying that you're trying to make a statement. But, like, that is also anti right Like, because the argument should be let your son be who your son wants to yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. Not, like, trying to... This is the other side of forcing your opinions on Yeah, your son. This is That's the exact same thing as being, like, I hope my son is straight. It's like, why do you have a say <laughs> in this, right? It's like your son... <laughs> yeah. Like, let your son be who your son wants to be. And well, it's kind of like the the parents who raise their kids gender neutral, mm. right? Yeah, you're forcing your opinion... Or vegan, even, or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're turning your child into a political statement. Right. Right, and that's, like not cool. Right. And that's not cool either way. That's not cool if you're also trying to, you know, be like, any opinion you're trying to force through your kids is, like, kind of immoral Yeah, do it that way. Well, and I I think that the marginalized opinions sometimes get like a free pass Mm. in some like it's harder to criticize someone for raising their kid gender neutral than it is to criticize someone for raising their kid as like a nazi right right (laughs) but they're both fundamentally just ideologies right right and one is not technically more right or wrong than the other right but there's a lot more social baggage (laughs) with uh you know raising your kid to be a nazi so it gets judged differently but they're both anti-rational like they're both anti-rational memes yeah exactly yeah it's like no this is how you should be as opposed to like you should decide how you should be right yeah you should make your own decisions at least yeah i thought this was a pretty cool chapter yeah i think it's a great dichotomy it's also a great distinction and a great point he made about western civilization Mm. there at the end yeah right it's like we're in this sort of transition point Mm -hmm. a little bit where a lot of our societal debates come from yeah And a lot of tensions, I think. And a lot of the stuff that we're seeing change, like, legislatively, you know, in the U.S. and in other countries, right? Like, Canada just legalized weed. Right. Right? Yep. And that is, I think, kind of a transition from an anti-rational, like, no, drugs are bad, to, oh, okay, you know, this actually has a lot of uses. And can be good for people and all of that. Yeah. And so, yeah, that is kind of the general cultural shift I think we're seeing. Yeah. Which is cool. Which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that shift. Drugs for everyone. Yeah. Yes, we can skip ahead a little bit to the unsustainable chapter where he's basically fighting any arguments against progress being sustainable indefinitely. And the thing he calls out here is like the whole Easter Island civilization that crashed and burned. Uh, And what I like that he highlights about it is that the problem isn't that Easter Island like ran out of trees or had a drought or whatever. It's that they didn't solve the problem. Right, right. There will always be problems. Because it's not like the trees one day disappear. It's like they would have been diminishing and then diminishing and then diminishing. And then Mm -hmm. then nobody was able to correct the problem. Exactly. Along the way, yeah. It's not problems that will screw us over. It's our decision not to find solutions or our inability to do so. Yeah, exactly. One of those two things. Because he he gives us other example of color TVs, that originally they had to use a mineral called, I think, like Europium or something. And there was a very limited amount of it in the world at the time. And Mm -hmm. so they thought they could only ever make 50,000 color TVs, then they'd have to go back to black and white. But obviously, they found way other ways to make color TVs. They found way more Europium. Like They all just became non-problems. But if you think of the world as static, and then you extrapolate out the problems getting worse then obviously you think that we're never going, we're going to have these like horrible cataclysms. Massive problems. Exactly. I remember a few years ago, there was definitely some articles being shared of like, the world is going to run out of dot coms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> out of domains. I think they said domains, not dot coms. Yeah. And then it was like, it's such a bizarre thing because it's characters. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then they released like 500 new TLDs. Yeah. It, so Well, and there's no shortage of dot coms because you could just come up with endless strings of yeah words. They're theoretically infinitely long i don't know how there's got to be some limit there's, i'm sure there's some limit but i'm sure we're nowhere close to that yeah exactly like, yeah. i mean <laughs> even if well, well how does the math work out on that even if it's a 10 character limit and you can use it's definitely not a 10 character limit yeah because there's domains way longer than 10 characters yeah i mean we're talking about 30 to the 10th right times itself 10 times five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10 yeah we're looking at 1.77 times 10 to the 16th right right Which so is in the past trillion past trillion it's got to be quadrillion to quadrillions. Yeah. and that's just com and that's just com yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's only if you can go 10 digits right exactly so like yeah. we're nowhere close to running out i mean like okay you could say english there's also all the languages that you could talk about oh yeah there's other characters yeah yeah we're nowhere close but anyway those were sensationalized headlines but yeah it's like when there's things like that when you view it that way right like there's a finite amount of this stuff and we'll never figure out how to do this. Well, and he makes this distinction here between the pessimistic and optimistic conception, right? Which says the pessimistic conception is that humans are wasters. They take precious resources and madly convert them into useless colored pictures. This is true of static societies. Those statues really were what my colleagues thought color televisions are, which is why comparing our society with the old culture of Easter Island is exactly wrong, or right? we're not a static society, right? Right. The optimistic conception is that people are problem solvers, creators of the unsustainable solution and hence also of the next problem. In the pessimistic conception, that distinctive ability of people is a disease for which sustainability is the cure. In the optimistic one, sustainability is the disease and people are the cure. Right. I love that distinction. That's such a nice, yeah. Like focusing on, and honestly, this is why I have issues with a lot of sustainability stuff, is that trying to get people to behave against their selfish desires is not going to work. Right. So just figure out a way for their selfish desires to work out. Like that's going to be much better. You're going to make way more money doing well, that. we were talking about the hotel thing. Yeah. Right. The hotel that's- thing, the-, the- Electric cars. Right. Right. Like, don't make an ugly ass, slow, expensive electric car. Make a super nice, sexy Tesla. Nice car. Yeah. Yeah. Make the fastest car. Unless with a Prius lets you um virtue signal a little bit. Yeah. People like that too. But the hotel thing, just for those who we're not talking about, is like uh who don't know what we're talking about. The hotels, any hotel you go to will say like help the environment. Hang your towel if you, you know, if you want to use it again, leave it on the floor if you want us to wash it. And then they'll put some stat of like how much energy usage is using like the hotel laundry. And they're encouraging you to reuse your towel because then they don't have to spend money on their laundry bill. But I think that type of win-win scenario just makes a ton of sense. Because it's like, yeah, it might use less energy, but it also helps the hotel make more money. And then they're actually going to encourage that type mm-hmm. of behavior. If it costs them money, there's no way they would be promoting it. <laughs> oh yeah. they will be like, no, please leave your towel on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, you know, that creating those types of win-wins are the, I think the only way yeah. to really create a you know an actual solution to those types of things. Yeah. And so you kind of have to have that optimistic conception. And I think we can probably just wrap up on his last line. Yeah. Which I love, where he basically says that uh, what lies ahead of us in any case is in any case infinity. All we can choose is whether it is an infinity of ignorance or of knowledge, wrong or right, death or life. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. Great great book. I mean, it's just tied in so many themes from yeah. everything that we've read and talked about on the podcast so far. It's a little bit quicker to go to Letcher Box, a little bit easier. So if you've been putting off reading that, you could start here. There's less cool art in this one. but Less cool art, yeah. You don't have any of the Escher pieces. Less dialogues. There's that Socrates dialogue that's about it. But yeah, this is a this is a good one. You'll hit on a lot of the same themes. You really get to exercise your brain yeah. in all sorts of ways with this book. It'll really make you think. It'll really make you think. Well, Nat will stop doing that when our Patreon yeah exactly that'll be our next goal <laughs> <laughs> ten thousand dollars a month we won't say make you think in any episode uh no but seriously guys uh go check out the patreon patreon.com slash made you think we've got two tiers up there right now at the basic one you get all of our notes from prepping for the episodes so our, like detailed book highlights uh you get the bonus material we had like a 20 minute or so bonus material for this episode just yeah. talking about all kinds of random stuff before we got started. Yeah, work, SEO, SEM, marketing, current events. Yeah, like just a lot of things. So, and you'll never know unless you join the Patreon. Uh, we also announce upcoming books. You can have a discussion on there. Yeah, we can talk about the episodes there too. So if you if you join the Patreon, we'll uh, we'll have a lot discussions there. I think once we get to a good number of people in there, the cool like Patreon lets you do live streams through Patreon. Uh-huh, cool, like only to your patrons. So we could actually do a little live streams recordings when we're getting set up here for the bonus material. I just put up the iPhone or something and be like, hi, guys. Uh, So I think we'll probably do that, too. But we got to get to a certain amount before it makes sense to do that. So yeah, check out the Patreon, support us there. And if you haven't left a review on iTunes yet, that would really help. Definitely do that. In fact, you can just pop open iTunes right now, uh, leave you know like five or six stars and a little <laughs> description of everything you love about the show. That's out of five. He's talking about not out of ten. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't don't convert it. No, no, <laughs> please. <laughs> what you what you like about the show? Uh, you can say how much you love the tangents and how we say uh, made you think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. It's great way to support the show. And like us up. Says to support the show too. <laughs> <laughs> so now you have to. Now you have to. Yeah. Pepper says so too. But yeah, I think you can also go support the show still on the dot Podcast.com slash support link. Yes. Where we have some links to our wonderful supporters, wonderful sponsors for Sigmatic. For Sigmatic, Perfect Keto, Kettle and Fire. Cup and leaf tea. Cup and leaf tea. Which we had some during the episode. I was drinking some Lapsang Souchong. Yeah. Delicious. Delicious. It's like drinking some scotch, but... But a tea. So you can do that. Also, you can click through to Amazon. Buy the book. Buy the book. Yeah. Buy the book through Amazon through our link. We'll get about 4% of that. So it doesn't cost you anything extra. It just helps support the show. Keep tweeting at us. We love it. Yeah. Keep tweeting. Keep sending us book recs. Because yeah. obviously we do uh, take into consideration the recommendations that y'all send. So... Yeah. Please do that. Uh, and... You should also join the email list. Yeah. I'm sure you've already done that. Yeah. We always say that. MajorThinkPodcast.com to find that. Yeah. I think that just about does it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you guys next time. See you next week.